Well, teenage kicks all through the night. Come on. Appropriate for this book. Hmm. Very appropriate. Which which book are we talking about today, Colm? Hello, listeners, by the way. <laughs> yes, hello. We are talking about Wintersmith listeners. We are, of course, Radio Moorport. I am Colm. He's Steve. We're the podcast that goes through 30 Pratchett's Disc World Series, one book at a time, rating, reviewing, discussing, ranking, analyzing, rambling, and on and on. And yes, this week we are talking about Wintersmith, the tour of the Tiffany Aching subseries. Indeed, indeed. A very good book, I personally thought, which we'll go into in more detail later. But uh, book first, no, first time I've actually read this. It. Very good. Yeah. Anyway, you can uh, find us on... <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've actually read this one. Was it the first time you'd read it as well? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think I mentioned before, I had only ever heard... The audiobook of the Wee Free Man, that was the only Tiffany one I had uh, dealt with before, so they're, they're proving a very nice surprise. It was a, a very in, in, enjoyable book, we'll, we'll get to it in, in detail later, but uh, I know um, our relatively low ranking of Wee Free Man was a cause for cons- consternation for some people, so I'll probably be relieved <laughs> to hear we, we enjoyed this one. Anyway, let's let's just recount the plot first for anyone who hasn't read this one in a while, or, or is coming to this... I know, I... I can't imagine there's people who listen to this without having read the books, but you never know. Like, yeah, it could be, could be yeah. the odd one. The Prime Minister of France is an avid fan, but he can't read. So, <laughs> <laughs> very political. I know. Gotten got, got far in life, <laughs> despite yeah. that uh, limitation. Fair play. Right. So in Wintersmith, we we uh, have Tiffany who is apprenticing to Miss Treason, kind of a very old and formidable witch. And Miss Treason takes Tiffany one night without much explanation to witness a ritual that we see as the, the Dark Morris dance, which was, of course, discussed way back in Reaper Man. But during this dance, Tiffany gets a little overexcited and inserts herself into the dance. And this has supernatural ramifications. What are those ramifications, Steve? During uh, the dance itself, she finds herself somewhat face to face with the spirit of winter the wintersmith and he becomes obsessed with this girl who he believes to be basic basically the representation the personification of summer the dance itself was always a ritual in which the two spirits never they danced but never really met so it was all about harmony and maintaining the status quo and basically making sure that summer ended winter began winter ended and summer began but because Tiffany has inserted herself into the dance. She has basically taken over the personification of Summer and the Wintersmith is now obsessed with her. As time goes on, while she continues her duties with Miss Treason at her cottage, strange going-ons begin to happen. They start off small. For example, we see some snowflakes with Tiffany's face engraved upon them. And all the snowflakes are the same, which... um, gives Granny Weatherwax a great deal of uh, satisfaction because of the amount of people who always say that there's never two snowflakes the same. Uh, they all have Tiffany's face on them. Then later on, he constructs some roses, a rose, uh, part of Miss Treason's rose garden. He makes these flower roses constructed entirely out of ice. And at which point she comes face to face with the Wintersmith in real life, where he's not 
when she met him in the dance, it was kind of a feeling as opposed to actually meeting him, shaking his hand. Whereas here, she can actually see him as a kind of spirit. And what happens then, Colin? He gives her, uh, she drops the, the silver horse pendant that Roland, the Baron's son, and her young man, as the the other the older witches refer to him, although their relationship is somewhat ambiguous. They're, they're pen pals, I suppose, in, in this book, to put it at its most utilitarian. But uh, he, he gives her, the, she dropped the, the pendant Roland, gave her the wintersmith, give, gives it her back. It sort of gives her like, like a cold born, the kind of born you get in, in really deep cold, like of, of ice or something. But having left this mark on her, it sort of means that he's kind of, the wintersmith has sort of linked with the pendant and he can track her via the pendant. So she goes to, to Granny Weatherwax and, and Nanny Og, our, our old friends, for help and they advise her to throw the pendant away. She obviously is very reluctant to do this because of its sentimental value for her. But she eventually does. She throws it in a, a, a top of a waterfall. And then they they return to the to the process of basically helping her cope with her her newfound um summer powers and the dilemma she's caused by arousing the wintersmith's interest. But first, there's somewhat of a bump along the road as Miss Treason foresees her own death, which as covered very very early in the discord actually this idea of wizards and witches being not only being able to see death the figure but being able to foresee their own death. Uh, shortly before it happens so she's quite philosophical about this she's over 100 years old she just begins preparations they sort of have like a party of sorts to see her off tiffany is understandably quite freaked out by by the whole thing she dies as she lives giving instructions and advice to the villagers uh, that live near her cottage but but uh shortly after she dies there is all right in, in fact before is, is it is it at her funeral or is it at the party she throws where the the witches are already debating as to who is going to get the cottage it's, once? It's it's long before that. It's um it first comes up when Tiffany tells the coven that she's a part of her group of friends that Miss Treason has told them that she's going to told her that she's going to die. And at that point Anagramma immediately Anagramma who we met in the previous book uh, as the kind of insolent young witch who's very taken with, you know, black magic and amulets and like the look of the thing she jumps in and asks uh, who's going to get her cottage because everyone all the witches know that owning your own cottage is kind of a sign that you've made it as a witch so anagramma is very preoccupied with this and um, all the older witches make suggestions nobody really assigns the cottage to uh, anyone because witches are there no, there's no leader of witches there's an unspoken leader who is a uh, technically granny weatherwax but nobody will actually call themselves a leader within which the covenant of witches so granny weatherwax puts tiffany aching's name forward knowing that she won't get this cottage because she's too young and i'm trying to remember the name of anagramma's um oh, the, miss, the backer miss, backer miss earwig or awidge as uh, awidge she, she as she's pronounced <laughs> mm. And uh, so she she puts Anagramma's name into the hat and most of the witches agree that even though they don't really want to disagree with Granny Weatherwax, they agree that she's uh, Tiffany is too young and that it should go to Anagramma instead. Uh, what happens then, Colin? So Anagramma is given the, the cottage, but uh, she sort of uh, misses Alwidge's tutelage has proved most inadequate in preparing her for her responsibilities as a, as a witch. She's kind of all at sea with the idea of the villagers coming to her to help settle disputes or to you know tend to minor to med- well not minor medical matters like you know bear sick people and so on 
so she asked Tiffany for advice, but she's sort of too proud to, um, you know, actually ask her for advice. She kind of basically calls her over so she can have someone to moan to about how badly it's going, and then Tiffany offers to get the other young witches to pool their resources and help uh, Anagramma basically bring her up to speed with all of the things that Mrs. Alwich hasn't been teaching her with regard to these everyday unglamorous mundane but vitally important duties and skills that a, that a witch must must have and, and must do so they reluctantly agree we got like a little scene of Tiffany going around to the other uh, you know Getting, getting the crew together, going around to the other young witches, and they reluctantly agree to, to help Anagramma. Tiffany has problems of her own because she's starting to manifest a lot of the, the summer lady's powers. She's got a cornucopia that sprouts endless amounts of, of whatever food to ask for. Her, her feet begin to make the, the ground sprout with life, not unlike Tepic at the start of Pyramids. And the, the winter smitcher this time as well, he's kind of, He's sort of confused but fascinated by Tiffany. He overhears a group of children singing an old, like, skipping rhyme about what makes a man. So he resolves to make himself a human body to impress Tiffany. And then what happens? So it's worth mentioning at this point that the We Free Men have actually been a part of all this as well. But they've taken more of a back seat in this story than in previous stories. So they've been kind of helping out in little ways. Uh, one of my favourite points of the story, which doesn't really feed into the narrative, but it's a nice little touch, is they supply a book on romance for Tiffany so that she can learn a little bit more on the going-ons of romance, how it works. This is when uh, the Wintersmith has kind of proclaimed, proclaimed his love for her and she learns a little bit about it. Um, we'll talk about that a bit more. It's just one of the bits that I really, really enjoyed. When um, Tiffany throws the horse into the waterfall... Granny Weatherwax also makes a point of telling the Knack McFeagle that they're going to need to supply a hero for Tiffany to save her from uh, the Wintersmith, which seems a little bit uncharacteristic until we get to the end of the book. We'll come to that soon. But what's his name? The leader of it. Uh, I've forgotten his name. Rob Anybody. Rob Anybody. Sorry, yes. Rob Anybody, he immediately steps forward and says, I'll be the big hero. But Granny Weatherwax makes a rather poignant uh, point that he can't be the big hero because heroes have to face down their fears and rob anybody proves that he isn't afraid of anything not even writing and reading and writing uh, because he's made leaps and bounds ahead of the the man he was before he's reading entire books now and everything so instead they go in search of roland the tiffany's pen pal slash beau slash fella who is currently residing up in his i suppose you call it a castle is it a castle his manner, yeah, yeah. It's, manner it's, it's 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 a castle, I think, because I think at one point he talks about the the fact that it you know had been built years ago for mm. defense and things like that, and as such, it's it's sort of a weird place to live. Yeah, you know, he talks about the the giant the doors that are like triple bolted and and so on. That's right, yeah, and it, that's significant because his father is currently really ill, so he can't really do anything he can't like manage the affairs of the land that he owns instead that responsibility is kind of going to his aunts who are quite detestable they reminded me a lot of the ants from james and the giant peach yeah yeah very much getting rolled dial vibes from that whole yeah. <laughs> but um, it, whereas uh, James and James of the Giant Peach kind of rolled over and did all the chores they wanted and like let the ants walk all over him, uh, Roland has instead barricaded himself into his room with a massive supply of food and he's aware of all the many, many uh, secret passageways to and from his room, which is in a tower. 
So he's kind of, you know, just he's actually kind of living his best Corona life, you know, just holed up in his room, not doing much, <laughs> keeping himself busy with his hobbies and, you know, social distancing from everybody. <laughs> and that's when the Knack McFeagal arrive in his room. And what happens then, Colin? So the Knack McFeagal recruit Roland to be the, the hero that has to go into the underworld and rescue the, the summer lady. Although they, they have to train him a little first. They uh, do their trick of kind of inhabiting a big suit of armor, all of them. Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's a word for that when you have like one body that is itself loads of tiny bodies working in, in well, for a given value of harmony with the Nakma Fiegel. But in any case, they, they try they try this to try and train him a bit. He's uh, promising, but, you know, it's still like a lot to learn. They go down into the underworld uh, where they encounter these creatures called Bogles who sort of feed on people's thoughts and, and fantasies. Uh, Roland rescues the summer lady who has the appearance of Tiffany, albeit with kind of golden snake-like eyes. She's somewhat contemptuous and bemused by the whole situation, but he, he's able to get her out. And then that means when um, Tiffany is back home at this point on the chalk, is gutting a fish, her little brother, Wentworth, uh, who of course when you know played a big role in in We Free Men, he's he's a little older now and he's quite he's quite got the dab hand for fishing, and he catches a fish. She, as she's gutting it, she finds the silver horse pendant in this fish. The fish had swallowed it when she threw it off the waterfall. What waterfell? Mm. Waterfall. Waterfall. <laughs> uh, that this means the wintersmith is able to find her, and she kind of is is then sort of tracked like a kind of wintry fantasy realm. He's built. He's trying to impress her, but she eventually... Um, it, it just should be noted at this point that when the Wintersmith and Tiffany met outside Miss Treason's garden, the Wintersmith asks what kind of presents are okay for him to give, and she kind of shoots him down on everything, but when he asks about snowflakes, she's kind of like, oh, well, they weren't so bad. But the resulting part of this skip ahead is... Basically, he is assaulting all of the lands with snowflakes, and it's like the harshest winter that these uh, yeah, the chalk yeah. and Lanker and all have ever seen. So, a lot of places are really suffering, and the potential for death among like the sheep and even people is very, very high. Um, just before she gets transported into the winter realm. Yeah, no, that's 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 a really good point. And then when he has her there too, he shows her that only her small patch of the chalk is the only place where it isn't winter. Like this will be kind of her summery realm that everywhere else will be uh, drowned in winter. And as there'll be no life because everything will be frozen to death, there'll be no suffering. So, yay! Um, <laughs> but but she, she ends up kind of completing the dance of the seasons by kissing him. And as she kisses him, she transfers the heat from that she has stored within her body to him. And it just, just melts him, which is a trick she had learned earlier from, from Granny Weatherwax and had used at the start of the book to kind of burn a, a hole through the snow to rescue some sheep so at this point then we get the this completes the kind of the dance we get the transition from summer to winter she briefly then meets up with the summer lady who's about to take her kind of place in uh, prominence in uh the, the i suppose the running of the the climate she's rejects any notion of gifts from from the summer lady who's sort of put out by this who's kind of very much trying to fit her into a mold a kind of storybook mold of you know a, a foolish but plucky young girl who who comes through uh, adversity and, and tiffany refuses to be fitted into such a mold and then at the last we get the kind of reprised uh what's it called like the day morris the, the the summer morris dance the kind of inverse of the mm. the dark morris dance 
and there's a figure in the dance that's kind of hinted at is the is the wintersmith and tiffany allows him the chance of a, a brief peck on the cheek and that's about that yeah so i mean that wraps that book up the third book in the tiffany series um if you don't mind the first thing that i want to talk about is i'm as you mentioned before the we free men when we discussed it we ranked it much lower than i imagine people probably wanted but the and that for for that reason when i first came across it i was completely put off by the entire tiffany series because i kind of thought it would go along the same lines i still stand by that even though the we free men is a very good book it just doesn't rank as highly in my personal opinion but i have to say the two books that have followed have just been leaps and bounds ahead i thought this book surprised i I think this might have even been better than um, A Hat Full of Sky, which I loved, adored, but this really got me. I thought this was an incredible book. What about you? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. it. It occurred to me when I was reading it, you obviously have that quite unusual start for a Pratchett book. We kind of begin in in media res with Tiffany having to rescue the lambs, and then we flash back to, you know, uh, to pick how we got there. And similarly with A Hat Full of Sky, where when you when you read the blurb of on the back of the book or early on in the book you you get a sense of what the the main um threat or or obstacle to be overcome is going to be you begin to shape a like a rough anticipation of what the plot will be in your head and then the the book subverts that by hitting certain beats particularly early like what happened this guy i said i was kind of surprised when you know she gets rid of the hiver i think there's still about like a quarter of the book left Mm, and here yeah. it's something similar where she meets the wintersmith really early on sort of ping-ponging between like she has this huge threat to deal with but it's sort of shelved for a while while she deals with the, the mysteries and stuff and mm. it occurred to me that the tiffany books are very much perhaps more so than any of the other discworld books are like character driven narratives so it means the plots take on odd shapes because the plots are ultimately subservient to to what he's trying to do with the character and i suppose because we're 35 books into this you know we're kind of reading them in sequence like maybe that isn't everyone's cup of tea but to me it comes across as really refreshing that you know you're having this kind of different uh, different shape narrative for want of a better term this this laid on in the in the series mm, absolutely and i what i particularly liked about this is it's such a tight little book i mean We'll talk about the themes that the book is examining, like I'm sure. But uh, it's great that very there's very little fat on this book. You know, there's very little scenes that like feel unnecessary, that feel wasted. Everything kind of feeds into everything else. Just you know, even even like the Nack McFeagle, who I part of me sort of feels like they're just there for like fan service almost. They are sufficiently toned down in such a way that like they're not in the limelight but they still serve enough of a purpose and they're still you know as pleasingly entertaining without taking too much attention away from the central narrative that's taking place and i just i i just you can you can sense that terry pratchett at this point has really really matured as an author and he's he's really become a master of his craft at this point I, i'm just sorry i i know i'm gushing a little bit here it's um no, a lot of the but to be fair, usually it is me who's <laughs> usually it is me kind of like uh, pointing out the flaws of certain books. So it's it's quite refresh refreshing for me to find like there's very little about this book that I disliked. I have to say, like I'm trying to think, is there anything? There's like a hand. I think there was one moment I thought was a little unnecessary, and I'm trying to remember what it was. But even now, I can't think of it. <laughs> 
Do you know what I particularly liked is um, the sense of continuity that this book had with A Hatful of Sky. Um, you know, it wasn't a case of, in some of the earlier books, you kind of got a sense that Terry Pratchett might have forgotten something that he wrote in a previous book, and he might repeat it, or it might slightly contradict something that happened before. Whereas with this, it all feels very, very natural. They slot together very neatly. I like, in particular, how... Um, how much of a focus is given on Tiffany trying to teach Anagramma the all the menial tasks that witches need to do, whereas just one book previously, she was complaining herself about all these tasks and how pointless they all were and, you know, why do witches have to do this? And it's great to see how she's progressing as a character. You can really, you're really getting the sense that she is growing before our eyes here with um, each book that gets released. Yeah, and she still has a bit of reluctance or bitterness over some of the things that are expected of witches. Like you have that those moments when she's apprenticing for Nanny Og. They're going from house to house, kind of gossiping and, and doing bits. And unlike early on in A Hatful of Sky, she can see, I suppose, what the use, what the end goal of, of this is. Like she can see how Nanny gathers more information about the village and resolves little conflicts in these seemingly indirect, subtle ways. But she also has this quite relatable teenage impatience and maybe like disappointment with like, oh, this is it, you know. But her, her second thoughts or her third thoughts, because Tiffany has this uh, remarkable kind of perspective and, and self-awareness, does think, yeah, this is it. This this is really important. It's not glamorous, but it's important. But the fact that she's still, pardon the pun for this book, left somewhat cold by it is understandable. You know, she kind of hasn't reached this this period of like, enlightenment and contentment with a witch's duties at the end of of a hatful of sky like she's uh, learned things but yeah still has still has growing to do and i uh, what you're saying there but the, the continuity obviously Pratchett's joked before about there being uh, no continuity mistakes in this world just alternative pasts uh, and it certainly <laughs> yeah. certainly played fast and loose with early on particularly when it's still shaping and you, you know for the best like there's an adage that like continuity should never get in the way of a good good story and and certainly like i i kind of don't begrudge him any of the particularly early on any of the like changes we we saw with regard to the i don't know the, the world building of, of this world or, or certain ideas or concepts or so on but having had 30 odd books to play with he's turning it into a strength here because he's using it to grow tiffany as a character in a way that feels very organic and very earned to the reader like we go along this journey with her, we see how she kind of grows in little ways and yet in others has, has more growing to do. And like each of the books so far doesn't feel like, like this week in Tiffany Aiking's Wacky Adventures, It like each one feels kind of significant to her growth as a witch and as a person. You know, whether it's kind of like the, the Hiver and, and the stuff you were saying there with regard to her kind of learning the value of this, you know, the, the work witches do, or what she has here with the responsibility and the kind of like I suppose like balancing compassion and responsibility and duty like I, I find it interesting that she uh early on you have this sense of you know that she as scared as she is by the situation she's in with the wintersmith she's kind of like a little titillated by it too like mm. oh it's cool it's like it's god fancies me it's pretty cool yeah uh, which which is understandable and later as she even as she grows you know frustrated uh with what's going on and wants to put an end to it she never loses this sense of like like that initial allure of of, of the wintersmith that initial sense of fascination with him 
rather than morphs into it doesn't morph into anger or contempt it just morphs into compassion and sympathy really in a lot of ways like just how he, he doesn't really know himself and like that the moments at the end before she kisses him when she's almost stealing herself because it even though it's something she has to deal with feels like a betrayal because he's just this misguided elemental goofball who's you know like doesn't mean her any harm but she's gonna have to kill him albeit temporarily for want of a better term is fascinating like yeah and do you know what i i think the entire relationship she has with the wintersmith is one of the undeniable strengths of this book because i it there i think it's very very you couldn't really argue that this book isn't about kind of um maturity growing into adulthood and you know even to a certain and like sexual awakening in a certain extent it's very very covered in metaphor for a great big part of it some places it's quite obvious but mostly covered in metaphor um but i think that the way that the wintersmith as a character is handled is absolutely groundbreaking in this book because even if you if you just look at like the idea of putting what is essentially our main character's love interest as the title of the book now, aside from the fact that the Wintersmith just sounds like a cool name to have on the front of a book cover, fair enough. But if you think of any like young adult romance novels, if that was the case, and if you spent the entire book looking at the romance between two characters, you're either going to see them eventually get together, or uh, you're going to see them tragically be split apart, where like, oh, it should have been, but it couldn't have been. But what we're really dealing with here is just like a very, very real, albeit wrapped in fantasy but a very real early relationship which is to be fair very 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 unlikely to actually work because very few relationships that happen around that age do work out you know it is kind of spur of the moment kind of stuff much like tiffany jumping into the dance when she wasn't supposed to a lot of it is very uh, physical in the way she looks rather than emotional connections and we can see that how tiffany does think the wintersmith is quite handsome and she likes like the things that he he can do his power his reputation but not his actual you know intent or like his personality none of that actually comes into play but that doesn't stopping her doesn't stop her from being a little bit you know in admiration of him and then of course we have Roland who is an extra character in the background their relationship is equally interesting because it's not clearly defined as like oh he's the boy she's going to realize she loved all along because that's not what it is it's not going to be like just you know the one-sided relationship because there clearly is like a very symbiotic kind of relationship going on there it's just not clearly defined which is good not not that like uh, terry pratchett wasn't able to define it it's just that it's good that it's not clearly defined because again that's something that we do have with a lot of relationships at that age so many of them like are constantly going through change and to experience the chaos of that while mixed up with you know her other responsibilities and you know her sexual awakening which is kind of conveyed through her admiration for the wintersmith all of these are very chaotic and very realistic in the writing of the book, I felt. Yeah, and then you almost have that contrast made almost explicit when Fiegel disguised himself as a person and go find the librarians and get that romance book for Tiffany. And yes. of course, it's you know, sort of like Mills and, Bill, Mills and Boone style thing that is so much more simplistic and idealized than, than what she has to, to deal with in the threat of the wintersmith and of uh, fundamental kind of uncertainty and, and, and miscommunication with with her, her and Roland. Nothing comes of that, though, does it? Like, you, you do 
get that plant there, but they, but they never end up bringing the book to her, do they? No, they they do, and there's a she's uh, she reads it like all in one night. But when they when it arrives in her house, she just looks at it and thinks, "Oh, okay." And like her plan is to read one page, but she ends up reading the whole thing. Oh, but as yeah. you said, nothing comes of it. But I think it is just a very sly poke of how unrealistic romance novels are, which is it's it's. One of my favorite sections of the book is Tiffany pointing out all the flaws and inconsistencies in oh, this book. Oh, yes, yes, I remember. Uh, <laughs> she says, like, yeah. um, you know, what good is this girl who, you know, obviously can't even... Well, they abandon the flock to go off and have a fling in the forest. No self-respecting shepherd would ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pointing out all these flaws. And I just, I love that. It doesn't, you know, serve the narrative, but it's such a wonderful little aside that I just, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I love that bit. Yeah, actually, early on, I made a note where I, I said, "Is there a bit of a nod to Twilight here? Team Wintersmith versus Team Roland, right? Like, and, <laughs> and you have our kind of our heroine, and she has two very different people competing for her hand. And this, you know, she does kind of mention that this does kind of make her feel sort of cool and understandably so. I, I almost, I don't know, I don't know whether this was Pratchett's intention, and I don't want to waste time trying to." climb into his head and, and argue that it was or it wasn't but whether or not it was i feel like this book sort of acts as a an answer to or a subversion of a lot of paranormal romance you know which twilight's probably the most prominent example and look this isn't a genre i'm particularly well versed in so i'm sure when i talk about it there are like myriad examples that have all manner of tones and narratives and and themes to them you know you can't really box any any one genre down into being one particular thing but for for the, the likes of the, the twilight and so on this idea where a common criticism is that it's there's a certain element of like romanticized abuse or, or i don't know perhaps abuse is too strong a word but kind of romanticizing relationships that would be unhealthy in real life you know like, like in, in twilight you have this like Edward using his powers to like watch Bella as she sleeps, and this is supposed to be like ah bless. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> watch you in his sleep, you hundred year old weirdo who still goes to school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and here we have the Wintersmith doing something. So what he makes the snowflakes for for Tiffany and and the iceberg. And again, she begins by thinking, "Oh, that's kind of cool." And I, I love that uh, she's she's really kind of niggled by the fact that none of the other young witches mention it at the at the coven like and she's preparing <laughs> herself like when she's going in she's not anticipating that like this will be something worth boasting about she's sort of oh, okay how will i explain this you know i'm gonna have to mm. talk about it to them and then when they don't mention it, it's like oh what <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> she, she's so, sort of put out so you you have that but then of course she you know, Tiffany has maturity to realize the the danger of this, and she sees the impact it's having on the world. The is that dream sequence with the iceberg, and mm, uh, mm, you yeah, know, as you yeah. said, then towards the end, we get this, this one of the worst winters, the Lankra, the the chalklands have I've ever seen. So these romantic gestures, this supernatural being is making to her, the allure of them is recognized in this book, but it also ultimately explores that. Yeah, you know, they are unhealthy and not the best way to be conducting a relationship. And yet at the same time, I feel like Twilight, for all its flaws, was sort of a, in some way, whatever. I'm not going to say like Stephanie Meyer got a hard time out of it. She's like wealthier than I'll ever be. But like in some ways it became a kind of an unjustified whipping boy. You know, like you remember, right? Like th those books came out, what, I think we would have been late in school or early in college. And they were just like a punchline. Like if you, if you kind of wanted to contrast uh, anything. And 
as such, I'm sure there was a lot of like, you know, uh, take this subversions written of it that were just you, you kind of get get their frustration with with aspects of that book, but they were I suppose like mean spirited and small minded and unimaginative and like oh it's Twilight, but instead like. You know, Bella just ends up reporting Edward to the police and he's locked up. Ha <laughs> ha! You know, or it's it's Twilight, but, like, he just starts beating her because, he, you know, she should have known he's abusive. And here, the while that uh, romanticized kind of supernatural threat that is somehow still alluring, it is deconstructed, but the reaction to it isn't something mean-spirited or unimaginative or easy. Like, Tiffany recognizes all of this, but she still feels sort of sympathy for the, the Wintersmith because... She's aware of his limitations and of the, the limitations of how he can perceive humans and, and human relationships. So when she deals with him, it's with compassion and understanding rather than just some like, uh, like really sort of paper feminism. You go, girl, where she kind of like slaps him down or shouts him down, you know. It's, it's with something that's kind of like is undoubtedly feminist if you want to look at it that way dealing with this young girl and and the hurdle she has to negotiate in in relationships and in people's expectations of her but in a way that has a very deep and rich understanding of human nature and relationships or in the case of the wintersmith unhuman nature rather than opting for a kind of like easy or or cool solution yeah and I do think that it portrays a ve- or it depicts a very very uh, healthy representation of you know young romance for a lot of the uh, young women as well. I, th- I think the inclusion of Nanny Og and the focus on her for a great big chunk of the book is very telling of that because I think there might have been a very very early draft of this book where after Miss Treason's death, Tiffany might have gone to stay with Granny Weatherwax and you know learn all these problems from her or maybe she might have gone to um miss uh sorry what's the name of the witch with who finds the other witches oh miss miss, that's miss tick isn't it miss tick yes uh so i I imagine um the logical step there might have been to send her or she would have gone to one of those witches to look for help uh nanny og might not seem like the obvious choice like based on tiffany's knowledge of other characters but because we're focusing on the depiction of young love and romance and that kind of thing. It makes so much sense for Nanny Og to be a central character here. And while quite often Nanny Og's flirtatious manner and general, uh, how is it Miss Treason describes her? Uh, a harlot or something? Is No, she, just, oh, yeah. she calls her something. Um, or, yeah. A, a, a woman of oh god what is it she calls her? she calls her something really good anyway whatever whatever it is she calls her she strumpet or something like i think was it a strumpet it was a strumpet oh, yeah, wasn't it yeah, yeah yeah she called her a strumpet um while that is quite often pay- played for laughs in other witches books here i think it's quite important because the message here isn't you know you know abandon all romantic issues and just like take responsibility of things you know you you have to be responsible and practical and all that kind of way because that would be a very very bleak way of looking at life it does kind of insist that the characters do enjoy themselves a little bit because like nanny og um does say like you know were you flattered by uh all of the faces on the on the uh snowflakes and she's like no well a little bit and then she goes on to say like you know you you're um representative of like the god of summer you know you can wrap this guy around your finger like you know and it is promoting a very positive image like you know 
do enjoy yourself, but like don't become enveloped by this romance and don't let, you know, uh, any kind of romantic abuse or anything like that or neglect. Don't be consumed by that. Don't be neglected. Like, you know, be your own person, but do feel free to enjoy yourself as well. Now, I probably put that into better words, but you do. I'm sure you know what I mean by that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because we have to contrast with uh, Miss Treason, who's kind of set up as this very formidable figure, you know, very much the quintessential wicked witch in the, you know, in the in the cottage where she has this black cottage and she has the the clock she carries around with her that makes a a, a lot of noise and uh, the two ravens and the skulls and all of this accoutrement. Uh, that has given her this um, huge reputation and standing within the village she serves, but at the same time, ultimately sets her completely apart from from it. You know, she doesn't seem human. She seems like a, a you know storybook wicked witch. And even when Tiffany realizes that all of this stuff has been ordered from a uh, the Buffo catalog, and that mm-hmm. you know that the skulls are fake and and so on. And her and, and mysteries and have this, you know, discussion about like the need to kind of mythologize yourself and and uh, the purpose it serves. There's still this sense of that to be a witch, you know, whether it's buffo like stuff or whether it's the force of personality that people like mysteries and, and Granny Weatherwacks have. You are using all of that to set yourself apart and above from normal people, so that you are something they can look for in times of crisis. And, you know, they will kind of turn to you and heed to your authority and so forth, and you'll be able to lead them out of disaster. But ultimately, at the core of that, all the witches are still humans, you know, and they still have kind of human flaws and human feelings. And Nanny Og is sort of the reminder of that, you know, in what, you, what you're saying, in, in the thing she asks Tiffany about how she feels uh, with regard to the whole situation with the Wintersmith, but also with the way the way her witching works. Like, most of the witches have sort of set themselves apart from the local community while being vital uh, to that community. Nanny Og is like fundamentally enmeshed within her community. You know, uh, half of them are related to her. She goes around to their houses and just like chats away and they're, you know, happy to talk to her like they would be to like any neighbor or friend. And yet she's still able to do all these, these duties and, and services that, that uh, are um, uh, part of being a, a witch in, in, in this world. Uh, so she's kind of this, I suppose, this reminder to Tiffany that not only you don't have to give up all of your humanity to become a witch, but that you don't even always have to pretend to give up all your humanity. You know, you don't have to kind of all the time be adopting this, this larger than life persona that, you know, is completely untainted by any human flaws or, or petty feelings and so on. And, you know, it's funny you bring that up as well, because I realize uh, throughout the three books that we've read so far about uh, Tiffany, there is there's a slight focus on um, Tiffany's appearance and what she wears. And I think that's kind of representative of that as well. How in the at the end of the first book and at the start of the second book, she doesn't have a hat at this point, which is like she has like the invisible hat, the hat full of sky. And towards the end of that book, Granny Weatherwax offers her her hat. And she declines saying that she'd rather have, she wants to make her own identity and ergo her own hat. Like she wants to be her own witch and her own person. She doesn't want to fall into this mold 
that the other witches have created. As you said, this is very character driven and we are exploring Tiffany as a character, not as an occupation. So we're seeing like how she develops. And in this book, she mentions how rather than wearing all black, like many of the witches do, she prefers colors like dark green or was it dark blue as well? Or I, yeah, I remember dark yeah. green. Yeah. So she prefers dark colors like that. So she, she is carving her own identity. She's not giving up her own humanity. But by the same token, she is a witch. And she takes that job very well because you can see how good she is at managing her responsibilities in this book. At one point, um, when Granny Weatherwax suggests that Tiffany should be the one to take over Miss Treason's house, even though she doesn't actually want her to do that, Miss Tick say, says, with all that she's dealing with now, do you want her to take that on as well? And very, very uh, poignantly, Granny Witherwax says, if you want to get something done, give it to someone with a lot to do. And you can just see how well she balances all her responsibilities. And it's it's really admirable as like, it's really admirable and believable and astonishing then like that you can see this character who is 14, 14 years old, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, yeah she's 14 or 15. In, in this 14, yeah, about, about that. And it's amazing that she's able to do all of these things in this book. And it's just, I it's frankly astounding um another thing that i was going to bring up sorry was um roland as well we've talked about how you know he kind of takes on the hero role to go save lady of summer in the underworld but it's really interesting how these tropes of the typical male hero and damsel in distress have been completely inverted here whereas tiffany is doing basically all the work and doing all these things Roland is in a tower for the vast majority of the book. You know, he is essentially Rapunzel up there, like, you know, (laughs) writing letters and all that. And for the vast majority of the book, that's all he does. And it almost seems like he has no personality for a while. Um, He's just very, like, sullen because he's dealing with, like, the death of his father. But then I like how he isn't just relegated to that role. I think that's really significant because I think a lesser writer trying to subvert those roles would leave him at that and that would be it which you know I mean admirable enough but Terry Pratchett takes a little bit further in that he puts them kind of on equal footing because if you think about it Roland does something like huge he goes into the underworld like and he's fighting monsters and everything which is massive but I also think there's kind of a delicious irony that there's kind of a sense that he's just doing that it's just kind of busy work so he feels important like, I mean, I know that's not the case, but the fact that he's not actually rescuing Tiffany, he's rescuing, like, someone else, and it is a job that needs to be done, it's just not the job, you know? It's not the most important thing right now, so, like, attention isn't taken away from Tiffany there, you know? there's They're doing jobs of equal importance, but this is still Tiffany's story, so she gets the most focus. Yeah, when we spoke to Mark Burroughs last month about his biography of Pratchett, I mentioned that some of the, the you know reviews he mentioned that were uh, less enamored with, with uh, Terry Pratchett, particularly early on, I said like this sounds like someone who hasn't read Discworld but has only heard of it, and you know this is the kind of like idea they get of oh it's just all these silly like you know puns and so and I th- I think another part of that that kind of like shallow perception would be like oh Discworld it just takes fantasy tropes and and stereotypes and sends them up parodies them and again if, if you're doing that kind of shallow parody in a similar way that you know if you're doing it a paranormal romance you just kind of have like the 
heroine be a cynical badass who kind of utterly rejects this overbearing, ghoulish, uh, paranormal would-be suitor. But here we have something that's kind of more complex. She's kind of allured. She's threatened. She's aware of the danger and so on. And it's more... It's it's fundamentally it's it's harder and more challenging both to the to the characters and to the reader. And likewise, if you were just doing a simple subversion of fairy uh, story conventions, you'd have like ah oh, get it because like he's he's the lad, but he's in the tower and she's yeah. got to rescue him. <laughs> you know, fairy stories. One of the the frustrations with the when when people have with with certain ideas that they uh, or you know like what be they whatever gender roles or, or ideologies that they convey are because they're by their nature so simplistic they kind of close off people's ability to have their own story you know what i mean like in, in a fairy story you have there's one character is clearly the main character here they have all the agency they do all the stuff the the princess in the tower is just waiting around to be rescued you know and if you were just turning this on your head again you'd just be like oh but this time it's the prince who's waiting around to be rescued but here instead, while, as you say, while Tiffany ultimately definitely is the, the main character of this book and, you know, does the most kind of growing, just does the most, uh, has the most significant effect on, on, on the plot, Roland has his own story. In fact, I kind of really like that sense of when you get these little vignettes with him locked in his room, with, you know, thinking about his aunts and his father. And there's very much this sense of, like, he's trying not to think about this a lot, you know, like that mm. he's a, a teenage boy and this is like you know his father's basically dying we we can infer he's got these horrible ants and he's aware of all this but you know when it comes up it's like he's not thinking about it as much as we'd expect because it's clear he doesn't want to think about it mm. and so I, I just love this sense with him of like oh you could have had a whole book that's just this situation you know like yeah yeah a, a book in, instead we we get this fascinating situation that's just one part of this wider book so rather than a simple shallow subversion where it's like oh this time it's a different character who doesn't have any agency and is, is in this you know role to be rescued we have someone who has their own agency goes against the conventions of the um i suppose like of the the archetype they they appear to be but does so in a kind of rich and nuanced way rather than in a way that just exists to, you know, poke fun at these, like, hoary old tropes and say, ah, look, look how clever I am. I realise these things are clichés now. Which, you know, not that there's something, like, not that there's anything fundamentally wrong with that, but I don't know about you, but for me, at, like, the age I am now, having read as much books as I have, I feel like, okay, yeah, I've, I've seen these things subverted in a straightforward fashion. You're going to have to do more to impress me if you're playing with, with conventions and and stereotypes and cliches and you know Pratchett always does but and he, he does so in a way that makes you aware of how easy it would have been to go for a, a shallower route or, or an easier target yeah absolutely like I mean if this was like a standard book you would have had um Tiffany you know fawning over the wintersmith basically onto a very set point where she realized oh wait he's not the right guy after all I better go save Roland in his tower and that would have been how that narrative goes but it's not that simple in fact there's a bit in the middle of the book which I really liked where um Roland while he's trapped in his tower he's also he goes to I think it's a ball or a dance or mm -hmm. something and he meets some, there's another girl, another like, you know, aristocratic girl who he talks to while there. And he mentions her in the letter to Tiffany and talks about how um, she showed him some of her water watercolors. And there's a great moment where Tiffany is just like enraged by the idea of Roland looking at another girl's watercolors. Like, how 
dare he read and it reminded me so much of like um do you know when you're like uh, about 13 14 years old and like you read a text message from someone and they have like oh man why do they say dot 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 why <laughs> yeah, do you ask yeah. like why like you know reading so much into tiny little things is like oh my god it's that mentality it's so so real and at this point the great part about this is that this isn't like the end point of her relationship with the wintersmith like she's still she's still like uh somewhat flattered by him she knows things can't go that way but like she's still thinking well but maybe i could you know that happens later in the book but the fact that there's like multiple romance options here and that it there isn't like she isn't shamed for that is that something that's really really significant you know i think i've seen in so many like when i was much younger and i was reading like you know teen books and like occasionally there'd be a romance in there very very often you'd see like if someone likes two people you're like oh they'd be shamed so much like how could i feel this way how could i split my romance or my feelings for some people i have to commit to one person which is a very like you know archaic view of romance like and not in any way realistic so this felt so refreshing and even like now you still don't really see that that often it's so nice to see characters like not feeling shamed and feeling quite natural in the idea that they have different different uh, feelings of similar power towards different potential romantic interests you know and that's just okay and i love that about this i really love that yeah part. the book doesn't denounce her um, as a strumpet yeah exactly she doesn't even play any wind instruments like. <laughs> that's i think that's why when she looks up the dictionary to find what a strumpet was when um miss treason calls nanny august strumpet i think no no sorry her initial reaction was so i don't even play uh, i don't think she plays instruments and, and like, it's like that's great misunderstanding Although but then does, i think the description the, i think the harmonica or the ukulele in one of the earlier books so uh that that, that yeah, odd oh, definition oh, yeah, maybe would, she would probably fit but I, I remember seeing someone criticize those those bits of the book where you know, Tiffany gets to let it roll. It's like, oh, her, you know, her watercolors as like, oh, you know, Tiffany becomes such a cliched teenage girl here. But reading that as a as a man, I was thinking, I, I don't think that's a cliched teenage girl thing. I think it's like that's a that's a teenager thing, like kind of reading, as you said, Maybe. reading way too much into communications with people you um, feel strongly for. And also the kind of fundamental ambiguity that's at the heart of a lot of your relationships there. As you said, it's it's good that like because she isn't, you know, committed to either Roland or the or the Wintersmith, like there's no real question of cheating on one of them with the other. She's not going out with with either one of them. But as you said, often you have in fiction there's this one true love idea and that once you kind of commit in any way or despite feelings in any way towards one person it's treated as if like you know like oh you're, you're you know you're going out now and anything you do towards anyone else is a sign of impurity where she is at this stage where she isn't quite sure of things which again is is very human very relatable and i think that that's situation too that i'm sure a lot of people listening to this kind of can relate to where you're sort of romantically inclined it's very it's very teenage although i think it's still it would you know it often happens to people are, are uh, older as well where you're sort of romantically inclined towards someone you're reluctant for whatever reason or range of reasons or half-form reason to kind of make the jump towards doing it and then you you get the sense of them either being interested in someone else or doing something that like you know pulls them away from you whether it's just like you know whatever moving away or you know getting a getting a new job or going to college somewhere or even just like you know taking up a new hobby that takes away from their time and there's this sense of betrayal like of like 
oh, but but I thought we dot 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 because there was no we because you never you know pulled the trigger and and actually um enter entered or tried to enter into a, a relationship with that person a romantic relationship with that person and yet this kind of ball of unformed feelings at the back of your head strong enough that that sense of betrayal is there and and I think like business of tiffany getting upset over roland looking at the other girl's watercolors is exactly this because you have her earlier in the book when she's sort of embarrassed and frustrated by miss treason and, and some of the other witches too you know reading her letters from roland and like feeling like oh you're a young man and she's thinking to herself well no we're not really romantically attached and i don't quite know how i feel about him so she knows she knows that they are in this like ambiguous friendship hanging on a precipice of something more but never crossing that precipice but yet she still feels that sense of frustration and that sense of, of betrayal and yeah it's it's very teenage and it's, it's very human i think absolutely yeah and what i love about it is in the way that the book ends is that there's no sense of like n- night there's no sense that like um this romance will never happen that uh you know that there's oh well you know she's she's all about her job she's all about being a witch and therefore you know i'm just over romances now there's no sense of that because there is that small sense of hope that like you know something between her and roland could still happen but in no way is that the focus of the end of the book because all the growing that she did none of it was to do like none of her achievements were attributed to her becoming attached to anyone it was all about her solving problems, you know? Like, the main problem she had was an unwanted suitor. What eventually became... Well, what was an unwanted suitor as... That's dumbing it down a lot, because as we've said, it's a lot more complicated the, than that. But um, she basically solved that problem, like, and she has reinstated harmony on the chalk and, like, the mountains of the disc world here. And that's where the focus is. And just her learning to deal with her emotions. It's not about you know, um, finding the right person, as so many of these books are, where, you know, I found the right person and now I'm a better person, or I've become a better person and that resulted in me finding a right person. Usually it's both of those and they come in both orders, you know, either you become a better person and find the right person, or you find the right person and become a better person because of that. The second one is considerably worse and quite archaic. I don't think that would happen that often nowadays. (laughs) Well, but you'd be surprised. But in this one, it is just all about her managing her expectations and her emotions and being more responsible in her job and just her general attitude towards people the romance side of that is just something that hasn't been abandoned but it's just an aside it's like you know uh, a side dish to the main course that is this book which is all about you know her growing up essentially yeah yeah and i think it goes back to the the fact that the tiffany books are character driven narratives that you can have a certain open-endedness about her relationship to other people because yeah her her and roland getting together or not getting together isn't going to be just like a plot point it's part of their development as people so you know well mm, i anticipate mm. at least we'll get more of their relationship or like not relationship in i shall wear midnight and possibly the shepherd's crown as well in the same way that i like mm. how um her relationship with anagramma here who's you know still very annoying and so on but sort of a friend and you know so often 
uh, like the Tiffany series, obviously like a YA book, and there's a certain amount of I, I like a certain like I don't know whether it's conscious, but a certain Harry Potter influence cre- creeping in, in the idea of the witching world becoming slightly more formal and a lot bigger than we previously got it in uh, the the, the initial Longer yeah. Witches book. So you have like shops for witches and festivals and this sort of like informal power structure with you know when they're trying to decide he'll get miss treason's cottage so uh, and in a similar way you have tiffany and her group of young friends who are like kind of they're all apprentice witches and and there's that sense of like you know harry and his schoolmates with any kind of school inflected genre fiction whether it's books or or television or or whatever else in my whatever kind of ongoing series you have this character who's established as like the rival you know like the, the kind of like like the bad student to our hero and they're just in that mold forevermore whereas if you think of your own experience at school you know yourself or any of the listeners your opinion of people changes and progresses a lot over that time and you like i'm not talking about someone going from like full-on bullying you to being you know uh, friends with you but someone who just maybe initially strikes early on at school is kind of like disagreeable you don't get on with them you slag each other a bit and then like whatever is as you both grow you grow a bit friendlier and it's kind of like oh yeah that thing they said that like really annoyed me when i was whatever 13 or 12 years old now i'm 16 yeah, it yeah. seems like a, a really big deal and yeah they're kind of annoying but they're you know like whatever a, a better person than, than i thought so here likewise you like as i was reading with anagramma i was thinking back to like you know oh she's kind of different she's serving a different role here than done in uh half of sky like she isn't just like the kind of like the bad witch the, the rival anymore and i was thinking back to half of sky and i was like well she was sort of like you know like bossy and patronizing but she wasn't really fundamentally terrible in that you know this isn't like seeing vimes mm-hmm. pal up with carcer or something like that you know um, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. that then had me thinking of like oh yeah then this is a more i don't know more naturalistic a more organic progression of a teenage sort of like school friendship done done anagramma just serving the you know the kind of role in in every tiffany book as the archetypal rival student yeah it, like it is interesting because even in like um a half full of sky she like you said um i you do kind of, that's kind of the initial um impression you do have of her as like kind of like the bad witch the rival witch but um, she very, very quickly grows out of that, especially when um, once Tiffany uh, gets possessed by the, the Hiver, you see that, like, she's kind of, um, she's very much like a foil for, for her, like, uh, you know, she's a bit helpless before, and, and like, you know, her personality is uncovered, um, that, like, you know, she's kind of cowardly um, when she realizes how much power Tiffany has as the Hiver. It's kind of similar here, and we have that brief moment, actually, which is really nice, um, where... Tiffany asks Anagramma like what her parents do and it's a very very slight thing because and I think it's really good that they do this because too much focus on this would have been distracting but it's just this brief paragraph where um, she asks Anagramma what do your parents do and she initially kind of stumbles and stutters saying oh well they're a lord or obviously something like that and we find out very very quickly that they're like peasant farmers basically and uh you know they can barely afford the farm that they work on and this kind of explains a lot of how why anagramma acts the way she does it's interesting as well that um the background that she describes isn't that different from tiffany's own background but how different they are in terms of personality so and you can see like there's some every now and then there'll be flashes of um, anagramma's arrogance or stubbornness in tiffany 
So she's a wonderful character to have. She's kind of, she's, um, we, we learned about in college in um, classical narrative storytelling, the, the shadow character, the, or like the character who um, our main character could become if, uh, you know, they don't develop enough or like if they don't kind of pull themselves out of the gutter. And in a way, Anagramma kind of fills that role because it could be all too easy, I think, especially, especially in the previous book, in A Hatful of Sky, we can see how when they befriend each other, when she's possessed by the Hiver, and she does all those terrible things. You could see how she very well could have become uh, Anagramma um, and just be like a terrible, terrible witch. But in this book, they're both, they're kind of, uh, Tiffany's kind of pulling Anagramma out of the gutter. And it's really nice to see that she isn't just like being set in that mold and like rigidly sticking to it. By the end of it, Anagramma is still quite stubborn and still little bit of a pain in the arse if we're being honest but um she's capable she can actually handle the cottage that she's living in and the uh other people there thanks to boffo to a massive extent but uh <laughs> still uh still really well and so yeah i feel like boffo and the idea of empowerment is kind of a very big theme that kind of runs through this the idea of like what gives people power in this because there's a huge focus on Bafo when sorry just for we haven't talked we didn't talk about this in the summary at one point when Tiffany is cleaning Miss Treason's house so Miss Treason has two skulls on a shelf which whenever people come to her with problems she'll use she'll say that one of those skulls will give like an answer that would be like positive and the other one will be negative something yeah, along the lines like of um, guilty written on them in, in another language yeah 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 and obviously the townspeople are absolutely terrified of that. And one day uh, when Tiffany is cleaning Miss Treason's house, she accidentally knocks one of the skulls over and underneath she discovers um, basically a label saying Boffo's Joke Shop. And uh, she finds out that a huge amount of Miss Treason's like um, uh, spider webs that she has in the ceiling, uh, lots of her clothes, the skulls are provided by this joke shop. And it's very much all about the look of the thing, which is really, really interesting because... When you look at, say, someone like Granny Weatherwax, she compl- she is in complete disdain of that sort of thing. She's like, nope, you shouldn't have all these, like, what she calls amulets and, like, you know, things that look fancy. And you see the likes of Magrat. She is very pushed on that sort of thing. She has all the jewellery and she see- you see that she's looked down upon because of that. And you also see the likes of Anagramma. She has all the jewellery and that's looked down upon. And similarly, um, what was the name of the girl in Lords of Ladies who oh, challenges Diamanda. Granny Weatherwax? Diamanda. She was very much about appearances. Magic with a and K. all these characters. Yes, that's it. And all these characters are looked down upon. But here, it's a very similar kind of action, but slightly different. And it's just. It's very interesting. What do you make of that, actually? I, I hadn't thought of that contrast, but it, but it's it's a good point now, as I realize now as you say it. And I suppose the difference is it, it's style and substance, right, fundamentally. It's like the uh, Granny Weatherwax is all substance and Mrs. Arwage is all style. And I suppose the difference is with Miss Treason, she, yeah, she uses the, the style, the kind of like a buffo accoutrements, but she uses it to help achieve the substance right like all those kind of spider webs and skulls help her achieve this standing in the village that then allows her to you know solve problems and to do things of substance and of significance in resolving conflicts in in helping the villagers through their lives you know rather than the style just being an end in and of itself as it's it's kind of implied that mrs always earwigs way of doing things 
it's you know it's all style and no more like in the same way that kind of anagramma when she's initially there is kind of gobsmacked at the idea that she should resolve conflicts between the villagers and thinks like oh just you know leave them to it their simple peasant wisdom will, will shine through which comes to one of my, my probably my my main and only bone of contention with the book but i'll put a pin in that and get to it later so that that you know she presumably just saw her business of witching when she took over the cottage of whatever doing of magic circles and ceremonies and just you know kind of laissez-faire letting the villagers not dealing with any of their own problems and, and uh, letting them deal with it while she kind of progressed at witchy things and, and then it creates this complete separation between a witch and a witch's community and now that i think of it, it it's kind of a i suppose like it's it's underpinned with anagramma with this idea that that you brought up earlier that she comes from a similar background to tiffany i i think i think it's about she's a little worse off like i think her family are farming laborers whereas tiffany's dad owns his own flock of sheep and all but in any case, she she does come from a similar uh, background, but completely distances herself from it, you know, like to the extent of initially lying to Tiffany about what her parents do. So for Anagramma, uh, well, perhaps not by the end of the book when she's kind of, uh, you know, learned some things, but, but initially at least and under Mrs. Earwig, witchcraft is about completely removing yourself and transcending from these mundane, petty community and reaching these so-called higher mysteries. But to the likes of Granny Weatherwax, it's like, well, that's no good to anyone. You know, you're not kind of helping anyone. You're just kind of up there, airy-fairy, like, uh, you know, dealing in all this, like, witchy-wankery that isn't isn't going to... Uh... And I, I, I use that word in, in a very deliberate sense because it's, like, purely indulgent. Like, it's purely just, like, am I great? I'm doing this. It doesn't help or affect any, any other people. And for Tiffany this book and perhaps all of her books kind of to an extent they're about like balancing those two sides as she becomes a witch of balancing this sense of having greater responsibility and having greater insight into these difficult and complex and magical matters with the side of her that is really attached to her home and her family as much as she admires granny weatherwax or mysteries and you get the extent she does uh, you get the uh, feeling she doesn't want to end up like them you know kind of like alone and completely shut off from the, the communities around her mm. what's interesting about that is so, like you said um the the idea of like all this amulets and like a uh, witchcrafty wankery as you call it like um that 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 definitely applies there but i'm thinking of the example of magrat though in earlier books where uh, now i know we're not talking about like the likes of weird sisters or anything like that here but it is interesting that in those books like she is also very much into the idea of like you know amulets and like having dribbly candles and like you know having the look of the thing whereas they're all kind of like about down to earth kind of stuff but she is like all she's all about the style but substance isn't something that she's completely divorced from either like she is a very hands-on witch as well like but she doesn't have the same respect as everybody else which is like so that kind of falls into the same category as them but the difference between magrat and the likes of say diamanda or um uh amagrama or anyone like that is like whereas they don't really seem to have a clue and they're trying to you know disassociate themselves from the witching community or the the their communities uh magrat wasn't like she wanted to be a part of the witch but she was trying to empower herself using those uh all those trinkets to kind of you know give herself an air of grace or wisdom or mysticism which frankly she didn't have 
And I'm just finding it interesting that, like, we're getting a, that interesting parallel with her and, like, and all the other characters and Miss Treason, who also um, somewhat requires that sense of style, like, to, you know, to kind of maintain that level of control, to kind of, to have the power to be able to help these people. That's kind of necessary, you know, for her. Um yeah, I think I I think that's really really interesting. I have to say. Yeah, well, what's interesting is we we never saw it. I suppose fully pursued with McGrath because she ends up giving up witchcraft or at least full time witchcraft to become a, you know, a queen and 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 a mother and and a wife. So as the the first three longer witch books that that feature her prominently progress, you have this sense of her kind of. As you said, she she has all these accoutrements, all the kind of like buffo, although she really does seem to genuinely believe in it. Partly, to, partly out of her genuine interest in this kind of stuff, partly to compensate for the fact that she doesn't have the social standing that that Granny and and Nanny have, and you have this sort of battle between like Nanny or Granny's headology and McGrath wanting to use magic in what she feels is a more kind of like substantial and well like magical way, and this is sort of resolved by the end of Lords and Ladies. Say McGrath's personality hasn't fundamentally changed because since she still is into a lot of that kind of, uh, for want of a better term, sort of like new agey accoutrements. But she has learned real substance and confidence. But because then she stops being a witch, you don't see what the version of McGrath's witchcraft, whereby she's confident and rooted in the substantial, significant practicalities of life and of helping people and of making decisions, looks like, you know, you don't know whether that, still involves stuff like you know candles and runes and and all those other things she like so you sort of get a version of it here with miss treason where she has managed to use that kind of things to a substantial end but i suppose the big difference is miss treason doesn't buy into it in a way that mcgrath does you know like she's not saying oh yeah these skulls help me reach this whatever yeah uh, communicating with other realms that then helps me help resolve this villager's argument about a, who owns a cow she knows it's all it's all baffle. I feel like it is kind of a mid, like a Miss Treason kind of acts as a midway point between Granny Weatherwax and Magra. And she actually leans a bit more towards Granny Weatherwax because although Granny never herself says like, oh, I don't need, you know, all that nonsense. Like, I'm just here to do my job and I don't need to have all these ambulance and stuff. It's not to say that like she's never done anything like that. Like there are in earlier books, she's offered uh, potions to someone saying like, now if you rub that on your chest or something for six times a week it'll be fine like so she does use headology but she's got you know tools to implement them like to help her along and i guess like miss treason is just like a more emphasized emphatic version of that like she's got a lot more tools in her arsenal and you could just you could very reasonably say that because miss treason is well she lies about her age but she says she's 111 years old and uh, oh wait no 113 sorry she says she's 113 and um, you could just say that she needs more things like that to kind of help her along. Like um, she, she's got more things to fall back on to create the illusion that she's like this haggard old witch. And like, uh, you know, she doesn't so she doesn't have to do all the, you know, the legwork and the putting all the elbow grease that Granny Weatherwax is still quite capable of doing. So, you know, that that's an argument that could be made. Yeah, but I think what yeah. it boils down to, mm, I, th- I think what it boils down to is like what each individual character feels they need to actually like you know feel like they can do their job and like you know what what do they need versus how much of it is just flash you know like and a really good example of it we can see in tiffany with the horse 
that she has from Roland. And because there's constant uh, reflection from her on like, does she need the horse? Is it a part of who she is? And she seesaws on that so much like throughout the book. And it's really interesting to see because it, it kind of draws up the question, the really philosophical question, like, do we need things? Like, do they define us? And like the simple answer to that you would say is just, no, we are who we are and that's it. But like, that's not to say that we're not like attached to certain things. And like, if we were to just like get rid of like all, all our possessions, does that mean like we would stay the exact same or will we change slightly? You know, like it's not as simple as we don't need things. We're the same person all the time. It's not that simple. And this book delves into that in a really interesting way by focusing on one very small object. Cause Tiffany isn't a materialistic person. We know that very much. We know this by the fact that she doesn't have any fancy underwear, which I think has been mentioned <laughs> in two books so far. <laughs> but um, she also, like she doesn't have very many things. So the fact that she has this one thing that's useless and that's great that she says that yeah. it's useless. It, it doesn't have like any kind of any, any use at all. It's just something that she has. And the idea of throwing it away is, um, you know, so difficult for her. So that's something I found really interesting. And also just before I pass it back to you, I also thought it was it possibly might have been a bit of a send-up to the ending of Titanic when she throws the <laughs> God, horse over the waterfall. <laughs> like, I was just thinking, because, like, you know, it's so focused on romance, and Titanic at the time was, like, you know, the most romantic movie ever, like, when that came out. So, like, her throwing the horse into that thing to kind of, in a way, let go... In the movie, it's, like, to let go of her love that, like... And, or it's rather to... Actually, yeah, now that I think about it, it's kind of simultaneously so she can move on but also as a way of expressing like oh i'm giving my heart to you whereas in this it's interesting a very interesting send-up now that i think about it because it's a gift from roland so in or but she's getting rid of it in order she can throw another boy off the path so if she keeps it it's like um she's keeping a memento from a boy she likes but she's also in doing so she's also drawing the attention of another boy but if she throws it away, it's like giving up on Roland while simultaneously, um, yeah, like you know, throwing the, the winter smith. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's an actually a really interesting thing I hadn't thought of at all. Now that I think about it, so like, that's an interesting dilemma for Tiffany in that moment because she can either, you know, stay completely human and engage in all these like romantic entanglements and like you know just be a normal human being basically albeit one that has like a winter spirit chasing her and throwing like icebergs at her or you can like you know completely abandon that be an utterly responsible human being and just like live for your job and your responsibilities and that's it and i love the fact that there's like so much focus given i cannot believe i did not take that into account when i was reading the book that's only just hit me now and i'm like that's amazing um i love the fact that she manages even though it's absolutely heart-wrenching for her to do, she does throw it away, but it's just, it's such a good thing for me that she gets it back in the end. Like, it, it's not a good thing that it comes back, but she does get it back, and that's great. I really, really like that. But then she has this wonderful moment at the very end of the book where the iron that the Wintersmith used to become a human, she collects that and turns it into a ring. Yeah. And then, she gives that away. then at the... And she gives that away. So whereas in that the initial decision, she's forced to either remain completely human and give up her identity as a witch or completely embrace her identity as a witch and almost become inhuman where she's completely emotionless, which is a horrible decision to make. 
But at the end of the book, she has to make a very similar decision, but she's not compromising either one. Oh my God, that's so perfect. I love that. I've only just realized that was there. And I love that. That's amazing. Oh, that's giving me chills. <laughs> With the, the Iron uh, Ring, at first I thought like, oh, this is cool. This is like, she has the, the horse, this, uh, this memento she picks up in, in uh, Half of the Sky. And now she's got this ring and she'll have it in the books going forward. And again, contributing to that sense that the events we witness in the Tiffany books are like important landmarks or catalysts in the growth of her as a person that don't just end on the last page of each given book. She kind of carries them with her, you know, as, as, as the books uh, progress. So I almost felt sorry that she gave it away. But as you say, there is great symbolism at work there. I think too, the, the idea with the, with the horse the fact that it's Granny Weatherwax who's urging her to throw it away, and of course Granny famously, you know, identified sin to uh, Mightly Oats as treating people as things, you know, um, and the, the flip side of there, the uh, unspoken inference there is that treating things as people is also a bad thing. And it's, you know, largely it's true. But at the same time, Tiffany investing such sentimental feeling into the, the horse locket isn't necessarily a bad thing to me it feels like it's sort of serving a similar function for her as Vimes's cigarette case does in Nightwatch where he's completely removed and unmoored from his own time and from his home and from like kind of I suppose a sense of what he truly is you know he, he does wonder several times will I have a present to go back to so the monks get him this thing to sort of so it's something to hang on to that he can look at that and say like this is this is what I'm doing this for you know, this is what I'm trying to get back to. And in the same way, as, as a witch, Tiffany is kind of uh, removing herself from a lot of the ties and relationships that would have characterized her growing up, whether it was just moving away from home, which we saw a lot of in the in, in Hatful of Sky, or it's whether it's her relationship with other people. Like here she talks about how people speak to you when you've got the, the pointy hat on versus, you know, how, the, how they don't. So the, the horse kind of helps her when she's fully embracing witchcraft and having to be this person who is in granny's words is on the edge making decisions which fundamentally puts you at a remove from all the people around you she still has this one link to remind her i'm human i do have real feelings and, and real ties with these people i'm not just a pointy hat that makes decisions i think it's interesting too because granny is obviously such a formidable figure and you know largely beloved in the Discworld readership but within the characters in the book, sort of, in all of the books, really have kind of mixed feelings on her. You know, like whether it's just the villagers sort of fearing her, but also respecting her. And, and you have those moments in um, Lords and Ladies and in Carpe Juggalum where she kind of does seem to uh, wonder and regret to herself about how unloved she is by the people around her. Or whether it's the, the other witches, like you have at the, bit in, um, at the end of A Half Full of Sky when Tiffany's like, you know, who are you really, you know, like how you're constantly uh, watching yourself to make sure you don't become the Wicked Witch and how hard and how horrible that must be. So while Tiffany respects Granny a lot and obviously kind of learns so much from her, you do get the feeling that she isn't looking at Granny as, as a, an aspiration. You know what I mean? She isn't looking at Granny and saying, that's that's what I want to be when I grow up. You know, like that's the kind of witch I want to be. Like, yeah, she does learn a lot from her. But she isn't just trying to turn herself into another Granny Weatherwax. And 
having those two characters that the reader likes and respects a lot have this sort of almost unspoken conflict because they, they don't really voice their, their feelings on the, the object when they're thrown away. It's locked in the very practical grounds of you need to throw that away, the Wintersmith will find you. But the conflict really is or the fact that Granny would have no attachment to, you know, objects to, to things and Tiffany has does but has a very human, very emotionally substantial reason for having that attachment rather than it just being a you know, whatever a, a passing fancy. Yeah, and like as you say, I know that um Tiffany isn't trying to become Granny Weatherwax as she is like, you know, continuing her journey along becoming a witch but i think there is an inference that because granny weatherwax plays such a massive role in her like molding like and like how how she she approaches the job and how she's like she's always there in like all these big moments of her life like immediately in the first book she only shows up at the end um but she is there all the time and like she's constantly like kind of mentoring mentoring her so there is a suggestion that she is traveling along the same path as her simply because if you fall in the footsteps of your mentor you're going to become quite similar in that sense but as you say she's not trying to become that because there are moments where they butt heads all the time and like little subtle ways like i love how um in this book when tiffany brings the kitten who uh, Granny Weatherwax quite affectionately names you <laughs> yeah. as in, come here, you. I love that. I thought that was great. It's great how before that scene, Tiffany makes a point of saying, you know, Granny Weatherwax can be quite difficult and like there's only so far that like, you know, manners will take you. But she does like say, but I do like Granny Weatherwax, which is a sentence I don't think has ever been written down in any Discworld book by anybody. So it's it's a huge thing that it, the main character here does say that she likes Granny Weatherwax. That's huge. I think that's massive and like a huge part of this book. Uh, but that's not to say that she's just like fawning over. Like it's not. It's very different relationship that say Magrat has with her. Magrat was always looking for her admir like uh, her approval, but she wouldn't say that she liked her or anything like that. Whereas Tiffany does seem to actually like her, and that I think the gesture of like bringing her a cat as like you know a companion and you can see that even in the um the end of the previous book where she gives her the hat and uh, oh sorry not the hat the cloak and granny says that like oh i don't know if it suits me but tiffany picks up and there's kind of a question at the end of that statement she's like no no it really suits you i mean it makes you look really grand she's like "Mm, well okay so that relationship there does suggest that she's kindly following in a similar path as you say she's not trying to become granny weatherwax and yeah that's what a big part of that that symbolic throwing of the heart of the ocean over the waterfall (laughs) i think yeah you get the feeling tiffany understands granny better than any character maybe than maybe other than nanny what what i love to hear is i said we we sort of had the harry potter influenced wider witching world but what's fascinating about that is not only you see all these different witches who have very different philosophies on witchcraft you know it's not just a simple granny goods mrs awadge bad because you have people in between like miss treason and like nanny and i like the fact that part of the tiffany book seems to be tiffany apprenticing under lots of different witches so she's kind of yeah learning yeah. and weighing up their different philosophies and ideas and you know taking the bits she likes and, and molding the bits she doesn't and you know she, her relationship with them can be antagonistic at times like she sort of like she gets into that argument with miss treason after the, the, she argues that yeah. everyone, I'm pretty sure you could say that in every single book she does get into like 
a solid argument with pretty much every single yeah. witch that she's under their tutelage. Like the the closest what uh the witch from the last book, um, the one with two bodies, Miss Level. She I think she probably has like the most least antagonistic relationship because I think the only real argument she has with her occurs when she's possessed so I don't yeah, know if that really yeah. counts actually w- one thing that kind of irked me about the uh, it's a very minor thing but I'm not sure I like the themed naming of the witches like as as we meet more of them the you know Miss Tick Miss Level Miss Treason it, it just kind of felt needlessly gimmicky mm, it yeah. came with this where I'm like, like is, is there something behind this or are they like names they adopt when they become witches in the way that granny's called granny but she isn't the grandmother but i don't know it just i i like it, it feels like a joke i don't quite get and if someone tells me the punchline i'll probably be disappointed but it's that's that that's a minor thing it didn't hang over but you know really taint my enjoyment to the book which is what while we're speaking of the the witches in, in the collective but what i find interesting then is you have very much a sense of conflict with the older witches, like primarily with Mrs. Awaj and, and Granny. But with the younger witches, Tiffany has to get them to work together to help out Anagramma, even though they don't necessarily like Anagramma all that much. And I love that, like, it's kind of like putting the crew together, those montages you get in, uh, you know, in, in a lot of films where, um, or like heist films or what, uh, you know, like, yeah, like yeah. Else, when uh, Tiffany has to go around to each of them. And what you see in that too is you see these different witches have different gifts, different strengths, different specialities. So, you know, there's a sense of, well, I need to get, you know, so-and-so because she can help Anagramma with this and I need to get so-and-so so he can help Anagramma with that. It isn't just, you know, Tiffany teaching her all these things. But what it shows too is in this younger generation of witches, you have perhaps, and maybe this will change, but you have, although they are younger and they're, they're so they be kind of quite juvenile in, in their feelings and understandably so because they're teenagers, in some ways, they have a bit more perspective and a bit less pride than the older witches in being able to put those things aside and just, you know, cooperate together. Um, like, you have the the idea of when uh, Tiffany is cleaning up Miss Treason's cottage once uh, after she's died, Tiffany hides all the boffo stuff because she doesn't want the sort of legend of Miss Treason exposed to uh, Anagramma and Mrs. Awaj. Which is sort of like it makes sense with the you know you you understand why she wouldn't want the villagers to know because they feel lied to and and mysteries and standing among them as as of all because of all these uh, all of the buffo but you would think initially oh well surely she'd expect other witches to understand like you know to sort of mm. see what mysteries and stone and think ah fair play that's really clever but instead a lot of the witches are so wrapped up in their own personal myths that they wear them like armor you know and they, they don't even want their, their fellow witches to see through it and then of course eventually she will tell anagramma about the the buffo stuff but she won't you know she doesn't tell any of any of the older witches so there's this sense of that that younger generation of witches perhaps being a little more honest with one another and a little more cooperative than the defensive mindset that characterizes the relationship of of, of the older witches hmm and you know what's interesting about that is like you know the marker of what makes like an older witch or a senior witch is uh seems to be like you know the obtaining of a cottage the literally like surrounding themselves with walls so like you know that's a interesting yeah, point yeah, that, like true. you make there yeah so so um yeah yeah that's a really interesting point actually yeah and 
I guess it's kind of like representative of um, if I was to take if I was to look at that initially, I would have said that, like, you know, once you get your own cottage, your own community and all that, the only reason you seem to interact with other witches then is to kind of make sure that, you know, they're not going bad. You go for the tea, just kind of check up on them that way. But um, there is kind of a sense that there aren't as many friends there because there's they're all very antagonistic with each other. But there is kind of a certain respect, you know, and like. You know, you're kind of very formal with a lot of them. And I guess it's a kind of weirdly skewed version of like, you know, when you grow, like a regular person grows from like child to adult and like you can no longer just say whatever you want, you know, like you can't be completely honest and blatant with everybody because you have to abide by the rules of civilization because you're an adult now and you just have to do that. Like in your job, you can't say, I don't want to do that. It's like, look, it's your job. You have to do that, you know. But as you say, like, it's not necessarily seen as the optimal way. Like, when you get older, you should necessarily be, like, this way, and that's just, like, the better way of life. It's portrayed in such a way that the younger witches seem to have a kind of a... They might not necessarily have all the facts. They don't know everything, and this is especially depicted through... uh, Well, actually, it's kind of depicted through everybody. I mean, Miss... Tick, not so much. She's kind of becoming more and more of a joke character once Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og and uh, Miss Treason were introduced. But um, you do certainly get that. Granny Weatherwax, certainly, and in this book especially, Nanny Og, they have a lot of wisdom that they can impart on people. So it's kind of a trade-off between that sense of community and for, you know, just general wisdom. So they're kind of gathering as much wisdom as they can before they basically say, okay, here's all my wisdom now that I've gathered go into my house, stay there, and then just kind of pass it on to the people. It's a weird system. It's neither is, I I don't really know what exactly he's trying to say here. I think at this point, when we were reading the biography on Terry Pratchett, I think it was around this point that Terry Pratchett was aware, like he'd already been diagnosed at this point. So this might be around the point where he's kind of starting to pass the torch on to other people. And this might be coming through in his writing. Um, I'm not, this was 2006, I don't know if, it was 2007 when he, he was, um, uh. it was, it was, but I, I think that's, uh, I suppose, a natural, just a natural enough, he's 30 odd books in, you know, even if he was going to write 30 more and live till he was 90, that sense of, to make the Discworld interesting and I suppose kind of vibrant, you do have to have that sense of progression and not just like stagnantly pursuing the same characters, doing the same things over and over again. And that's why I like, as you say, there is a sense perhaps with the the younger witches being a bit more communicative of it's that sort of freedom you have in childhood before you, you know, get a bit more defensive and, and wary when you become an adult. But I would like to think that like when that generation of witches becomes the generation of witches, you know, when they're the ones with the cottages, that they'll still be a bit more open with one another than like Granny and, uh, and her peers are. You know, who who knows? That section also does have a, a lovely bit when uh, Petulia says to it, Anagramma, calling her the pig witch. And Tiffany's like, well, everyone calls you the pig witch. You are the pig. And she goes, yeah, and she says that there's a good deal more pig and a good deal less witch. <laughs> Which is just uh, <laughs> yeah. such a perfectly encapsulates Anagramma's opinion of, of Petulia and that whole... I suppose, side of witchcraft, that kind of, like, grimy, agricultural, domestic side of it. And also, it's just, like, kind of one of those perfectly Pratchettian, astute observations of of human communication, of how you can inflect certain words to make them more insulting without actually seemingly, you know, changing changing the word or or adding anything onto it or, or anything like that. Yeah. 
because that now this was something that was kind of inevitable in my mind i kind of like to pick your brain on this because i might be reading a little bit too much into it because there are so many female characters in this book i and because there are a lot of mentors in this like we have granny mentoring tiffany we have nanny mentoring tiffany we have tiffany mentoring anagramma we have the knack mcfeagle mentoring uh, roland but obviously that's different gender but even still i found myself thinking of the theme of motherhood and wondering like would there be anything in that here I, i i i honestly i don't really feel there is but like i couldn't find any like real symbolism or anything like that i don't know i just want to kind of want to see did you did was there anything that jumped out with you that might like connect to that theme not really uh, in fact i think it's interesting how you say it that you can have all these um female relationships particularly intergenerational female relationships that aren't necessarily characterized by by a mother-daughter relationship i think that in itself is significant I suppose the the one thing that jumps to mind is that you do have the contrast that when Tiffany returns home, her mother, her actual mother, doesn't play that kind of role at all for her. You know what I mean? She's like that. That for me, I think it's the heart of the book is that bit where where she comes back home. You know, just before it all kicks off, really, with the winter space, and she kind of knows that what she's experiencing is this brief oasis of calm in the middle of being in the eye of the storm. Sort of, I know, perfectly encapsulates that what she's trying to hang on to with stuff like the horse and and her correspondence with roland of you know becoming a witch becoming this person with this unique terrible powerful perspective but also trying to hang on to her uh her humanity and, and her sense of home but in any case what what jumps out at me with that is that like in all of that she's happy to see her mother again but like her mother isn't offering her unique or special advice on how to deal with her situation. It's just kind of home comforts. Okay, here's this bit anyway. She hung the pointy hat behind the door and went and helped the men setting up the pens. And again, she like literally takes off the pointy hat. She's briefly not a witch anymore. It was a good day. A bit of sun had managed to leak through the murk. Against the whiteness of the snow, all colours seemed bright, as if the fact that they were here gave them some special brilliance. Old harness on the stable. Old harnesses on the stable gleamed like silver. Even the browns and greys that might have once appeared so drab seem now to have a life of their own. And then she gets a box of paints so out. She finds use kind of again like coming to terms with with her relationship with Roland. It was a good day. It was a day just for her. She could feel bits of herself opening up and coming out of hiding again. Tomorrow there would be chores and people very nervously coming up to the farm for the help of a witch. If the pain was strong enough, no one worried uh, that the witch making it go away was someone you last remembered being two years old and running around without her vest on. Tomorrow might become anything, but today the winter world was full of colour. And that's just so lovely. And again, it, like it's, I suppose, sums up with the importance of, of, of hanging on to that bit. Like that sentence about like little bits of herself coming out, you know, of hiding that you do have to kind of suppress or hide parts of yourself when you're adopting this this role of, of, of the, the witch. It is a facade, as we see clearly with, with Miss Treason, but it's a very necessary, very important facade for the running of these communities. And she understands that, but there's a certain amount of strain. So she kind of, she has to balance it with these like brief times where she can kind of return home and just, just be herself again. And that sense of home as, as the place where you can relax and be yourself and take off the, the kind of mask you have to wear throughout your day-to-day life. I, I suppose like her, her mother ties into to that really, but yeah, no, no no more than that than I saw. Sorry, I, I should give credit words to you as well for um, after how uh, that bit jumped out at me on on when, when I read the book, but it was uh, kind of I, I opted to include it when it was singled out by um 
can't remember the chap's name, but he but he has a he had a blog called Pratchett Job where he done a reread of all the books and he specifically talks about that as a really lovely bit of writing and it kind of made me go back to it and reread it and see that it was really redolent of of all the ideas in this book. So often in many books that I read, where there's such a large ensemble of women as the main character it's it's so often you'll see the theme of motherhood creeping in somehow or other so it's a little unusual i guess i think it jumped out at me the fact that it wasn't present more than anything else that i didn't really get like you get the sense of mentorship but it's never like coddling or anything like that like the closest you might get to it is with when tiffany shows up at nanny og's house and like there's a little sense of like warmth there but it's completely upended by the fact that Nanny Og keeps asking her to like to make the tea for her and stuff like that, you know. So it's not really a sense of motherhood as we know it. Um, it's just mentorship the whole way through. And going hand in hand somewhat with mentorship, there is the idea of like tough love, which comes out of this quite a lot, especially in particular with Tiffany and Granny Weatherwax. That happens many times. We see it like when she's, as you said, like she's quite insistent that she throws the necklace over the waterfall but also also she gives her like she puts her name in the hat for the cottage as well which is kind of adding to her problems but like she's doing like all this to kind of ensure that like Tiffany's going to be able to rise to the challenge and you know be capable as that she expects her to be there's one point where there's a wonderful moment where she says I think it's when Tiffany confronts Granny about uh, you never wanted me in the cottage you wanted Anagramma to get there and you wanted me to take care of her and like, how how am I supposed to do that? And I think Granny says, uh, I'd, I'd expect no less of you. And the following, uh, the opening of the next paragraph, you can just see Tiffany absolutely glowing at the idea of Granny saying, I'd expect no less of you. It's like, oh, that's amazing. A lot of moments where Granny is like, basic, she never really coddles Tiffany at any point, but there are so many instances where she puts her in difficult situations in order to help her help herself. Even with the... Um, the spell or not the spell but the technique that she teaches her to be a conduit like between the two like she teaches her like she says that i can't teach you how to do that i what was it she says can you tiffany says can you teach can you show me how to do that and she says i just did she says, but you didn't show me how and he's like well you can learn it by yourself basically like all these moments where it's very very tough she's very tough on her because like she really is molding her to be like a very very capable witch and it's really nice that this kind of comes across from Tiffany onto Anagramma as well, because when Anagramma like takes on the responsibilities, Tiffany doesn't coddle her either. Like she, um, she does like help her a lot, but you know she doesn't make any. She, she makes no bones about it. Like she does point out, says we are making sure that you can handle this. Yeah, so there's yeah, going to be no hand holding. Like where, yeah. um, when they agree on, on getting the other young witches to help, Anagram's like, oh, maybe we could say they're coming around so I could teach them. And Tiffany's like, no, we're, you know, we're not going to do that. Mm. It 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 does. I think it kind of ties in nicely with like the idea we had before. Just this, just being realistic. You know, this is like. A very, very, again, I still think this is a really positive representation of, like, you know, young people and young women especially. But I just love the fact that um, it's real, very real in how it looks at, like, young romance and relationships, but also in, like, 
responsibility and how how much people should be learning how like you know when special attention is required then yes obviously let's give them that attention you can see that when tiffany wakes up and the one point magrat shows up in the book is giving her breakfast in bed because at that point she's gone through like something quite huge it's that magrat but in almost when she wakes up in yeah, the house, you... I, I assume it was one of uh, nanny og's daughters-in-law I no, I assumed it was Magrat because immediately afterwards Tiffany says like, "Wow, breakfast in bed." I thought I assumed that's something that only queens oh, would okay. do, and I'm like, "Yeah, I presumed that was Magrat." Because yeah, and I, it's I, funny I, because yeah, they they never actually like say this is Magrat, but I'm like, I I felt I I thought it was obvious now, but maybe I'm wrong. It could have been, but I presume because of that thing that she says afterwards about this is something only queens would do. But I could be wrong, I mean, because she also says when she describes her a rather like sorry, soppy-looking young girl. I kind of thought, well, that's Magrat there, obviously. But I mean, that was just me. Oh, you know, you could be right. I, I could well have missed it. Yeah, listeners, let let us know your your thoughts on this this particular yeah, matter. Yeah, it's not actually said. So yeah, if do you think that the girl who serves breakfast in bed to uh, Tiffany is Magrat or one of Nanny Og's many daughter-in-laws? We'll start a poll. One last thing I guess I kind of want to talk about is, and this is very central to the book as well, is the idea of, I've touched on this already and you have as well, just the idea of responsibility. That is a very, very big point of growing into adulthood. I think like any book that you ever read on, you know, adulthood or coming of age, responsibility, I think, plays a very, very big role in that. Like, I mean, it's usually how you know You've come, you've come of age because like suddenly you can't just expect other people to solve your problems. Suddenly you have to take responsibility for your own actions. And it's great that like, um, well, first of all, Tiffany has been doing that for a long time. Like, I mean, even as early as We Free Men, she's been a very responsible person, but she's an exceptional person. But we can see at the start of this, there is a brief flash of teenage immaturity as she just jumps into the dance and like just like says oh whatever it's all fine and basically find herself entangled romantically and the entire book the entire narrative is her dealing with the consequences of her fleeting moment of dalliance and just being like a child she's like suddenly nope i can't expect anyone else to solve this this is my problem and i have to figure this out and that's the entire book it's all about her being responsible for some of her actions and it's not saying it's not like condemning those actions it's just saying like you have to be responsible for those and i think there's a lot of examples of that through the book like you can see with anagramma in the cottage and you can see with with roland i'm not sure what i'm not sure about roland actually if that really i mean it kind of is responsibility he is taking up the mantle to go there but it's less pronounced i think there because like he's kind of being asked by other people and like you kind of get the sense that if he didn't go himself he'd be dragged there so yeah well i i think there's i mean he he goes and there's like you obviously have to contrast with him practicing uh with an imaginary sword in front of his mirror versus the, the weight and and the difficulty of him using an actual sword and i think there is something there and obviously he's in a pretty miserable situation with his father dying and his his, his um aunts and so on so while you can hardly blame him for the way he reacts to it, in shutting himself up, he is kind of like running away from the responsibility of dealing with those things head on. Like in a way that's understandable, given that like you know he's a teenage boy in that situation. But at the same time, isn't you know it isn't going to resolve anything. Like his father's still going to presumably die, and his you know his aunts are still kind of embezzling. It's it's implied a lot of the. The, the treasures and, and monies around the, the palace or the, the castle rather so and you do have that bit at the end where he confronts them and says like you know if you 
mention that to my father I'll, I'll tell him this so there's a sense that he's now facing those problems rather than just kind of trying to put his head in the sand absolutely yeah i suppose you're right it's 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 really interesting how in in the biography we read it mentions how young adult novels in in young adult in terry pratchett's young adult adult novels he doesn't have to be as subtle with like the themes he's trying to portray here and this comes across really well like the idea of like responsibility and how important that is it's very pronounced with tiffany because she is a witch so she is kind of like she's training to adopt a job or a role that basically puts makes her responsible for every problem that her community can't solve so she is putting in herself in a role that deals with a massive amount of responsibility and it's really good that like you can see how well she deals with that at the very start you can see how capable she is and how much she's dealing with like and she takes on extra work that she in a way it's not exactly required but by the same token like she has a responsibility to enact those responsibilities if, if i'm trying like the example i'm thinking of is um she goes to check on granny quite often to make sure she's not cackling and even though she does say early on i like granny weatherwax she also makes a point to say like she's not an easy person to talk to so it's not like you know she's relishing these trips to go see granny weatherwax but like neither does she like you know reject her completely she does undertake this responsibility to kind of see how is granny weatherwax doing so that's great in itself but a huge part of this as well because this is a book about young romance and coming of age i feel like the responsibility aspect of it feels particularly significant because she's she's basically this is the closest we're going to get i suspect with tiffany dealing with teenage angst it's admirable just how controlled she is about it. It's a little out of character at times. There's two points that jump out at me that are very emotional for Tiffany. One is when Miss Treason dies. And when afterwards, after she's buried her, she goes into the cottage. She cleans everything up. And there's a great line that she says, um, she cried and then she milked the goats because both of those had to be done. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so poignant. That's great. Like, but like, it's so, that sentence itself is so efficient and it belies like how she's feeling at that moment because like milking the goats and releasing that amount of tension are kind of like equal tasks of equal importance in her mind which you know belie how orderly her mind is and like how uh how much of a slave to her responsibility she is well there's also a sense of like it's recognizing emotional processes of, of dealing with things as important as just the practical tasks you know of, of running a household like the goats need to be milked because the goats need to you know get the milk so have milk the next day would you also need to in this case cry express your process your grief in some way you know that isn't like very often kind of i suppose our emotions are seen as luxuries you know and we have to kind of suppress them in order to deal with more important things and you know some of the time that's true like you you know you kind of have to you can't be like completely indulgent with like allowing your feelings like obscure or distract from from you know uh, other important things but at the same time like those feelings are particularly around something like grief and death they're they're important in themselves you know and they kind of 
she recognizes and the book recognizes that they have to be dealt with rather than seeing them as this kind of like either like luxury or like a childish act like oh no you shouldn't be crying you know like grow up whatever it, it sees yeah views those emotions as, as important and it's it's great i'm so happy you said that as well because like as you say like there are certain points where you have to just like kind of suck it up and like no i have to you know do this and there's that moment where she throws the necklace into the over the waterfall and she says like uh but i didn't cry but there is a difference between not crying lowercase letters and not crying uppercase <laughs> yeah, letters yeah. and i'm like that is just so good because it, it really like like you said like it's a huge part of this is like we said we've talked about already is like tiffany managing her emotions and like understanding when it's acceptable it should always be acceptable to cry but you should be aware like when those emotions are manageable and you should be like okay because in this in the, in that case that's two examples where she loses something in one case she loses a person and in another she loses a thing and in the case of the person, she allows herself to cry. And it's like, yeah, it just has to be done. That's that's something I need to process. With the case of the thing, she says, no, I'm not going to cry. But what's really nice about that is when she says, I didn't cry. And the difference between not crying and not crying is huge. Because not crying implies, like, oh, well, it didn't bother me at all. But not crying is like, it bothered me but I know this isn't as important as it could yeah, have been. Yeah, it's an active so act like, of restraint rather than yeah, yeah. an absence of, of feeling. And that is a wonderful, wonderful sentiment in this. I just, I love, I love the way emotions are portrayed in this book. I thought they were absolutely phenomenal. I really did. It, it really spoke to me. Yeah, they're, they're not seen as shameful, but at the same time, they're not. Indulged. Yeah, exactly. Or overindulged, I suppose. The one big sticking point for me with this book is the way, and and it, it only comes up directly in a couple of scenes, but it kind of hangs over the whole book because the whole book is about witchcraft and responsibility and the witch's role in the community versus their kind of their own feelings and desires and so forth. The way in which the villagers are depicted, like the way, you know, it mistreats and dealing with them, like talking about them like they're children, and they're just depicted as these like hapless morons who couldn't fucking like put their shoes on properly if they didn't have a witch to tell them <laughs> to do it for them like just seemed so patronizing to me and so i don't know like like i thought i think i mentioned before about like the, the way the lazy writing trick of making your own characters brave is to make other characters cowards or you know you make your own characters smart by making other characters idiots and there's always been this sense of like witches you know, have this particular perspective and they make these difficult decisions that other people have to. And, you know, Pratchett in, in other books has done an, an excellent job of seeing that, like of showing how that perspective they have is different than, than others and sets them apart. But here, rather than that, we just get the, like, we just get the idea of like, oh, oh like witches have to make decisions because these idiots couldn't take care of themselves other hell it's not it's not these really difficult decisions you know that like are, are hard or are wrestled with it's just these like everyday little things i suppose if, if you want to like fully draw out the political ideological ramifications of it that, that that idea of like the populace as this like idiotic mob that has to be kind of dominated by like like a, a wise elite is problematic to say the least I wouldn't draw that out too much here because we're getting like one look at a, these these particular villages. It's not being set up as a philosophy for life, but it did taint the thing for me because it 
this book is is about witchcraft is about witches relationship with the community and rather than that relationship being kind of i don't know like um difficult uneasy but ultimately you know necessary role of making these hard decisions it's a relationship of it's set up as like a relationship of being like you know an oversized parent to like a squall of kind of like you know moaning arguing children and it's sort of like yeah we, we get some of it with so like you know it the whenever democracy's joked about with regard to Ank Morfork, right? That like it's it's a dictatorship with with veterinary at the head and veterinary's kind of making these decisions and and doing these things without the people's say so or even perhaps going against what they would desire. But you know, again, like I, I the, the 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 kind of tongue in cheek jokes about democracy show that like Ank Morfork isn't being set up. Oh, we talked about this a lot in the watchbooks as a utopia. You know, it's kind of it's got its own very specific set of problems and so on. But if, if you wanted to tease out the political implications, you'd say, well, like you know, veterinary kind of thinking in terms of high politique, of, of real politique and, and and these big implications, it's it's like understandable that he's not going out consulting the man on the street because they wouldn't, you know, like they they wouldn't. Uh, know these things they'd be too busy with their their own jobs and responsibilities but the matter is mistreasons dealing with, with regard to like you know ownership of cows or arguments over land it's like i i get the need for someone to arbitrate over these things and you know to, to determine the justice of them but it's also like these aren't things that are removed from these people's lives you know they, these are everyday things so depicting those people as so utterly clueless about those everyday things seeing and depicting the idea that like we should bypass their opinion or their input about any of these and just basically like poke them in the directions we want to go feels much more glaring with regard to a small community like these villages than it does with something like Ankh-Morpork where veterinaries you know making some sweeping decision about like the city's whatever like postal service or something without consulting the people because they wouldn't have dealt with that thing every day you know what I mean it feels much more jarring here and more, I don't know, just more lazy as a way of depicting, you know, the role of witches. Just to sum up, like, they're just like, you know that, that bit in um, Small Gods where he talks about the first follower of Om being a shepherd of sheep rather than goats and the difference it gave on kind of Om's perspective on humanity because goats are smart and need to be, what is it, like goats are, goats are smart and need to be led and sheep are stupid and need to be pushed or... I I can't remember the exact wording of it, but there's some a while ago. <laughs> that that idea generally of, of of the witches kind of like leading a smart but instrangent and argumentative community was something we saw in earlier books, and like it's like as in in this one, it becomes instead, you know, they're, they're leading the sheep, kind of ironically given Tiffany's position there. Uh, background as, as a as a shepherd, you know, they're pushing around these idiotic people who kind of would be doomed otherwise you know i i do agree with you before i continue on this point um i am going to say that i do agree with you 100 percent. i did find that the rest of the book because of the quality of it it overshadowed that issue and it like it was a very small point for me but i do agree with you in that there was one thing that summed it up like really well for me where um Tiffany says there were times when you just wanted to give them a slap, but you're not supposed to because you're not supposed to be as stupid as they are. And that's such a coverall blanket statement for like everybody that it does feel quite jarring that it's like, so like, is everybody as dumb as the dumbest person? But I think the the issue here, I think, isn't like I, I 
I think there's a little bit more to it than what you're saying because like I think the it's just because we're having the worst examples here. Like we do get the worst examples of people with the pettiest of problems, but there are other examples like for um like I'm thinking in particular Tiffany's father when at the very start of the book when he's asking her is like he I'm no longer coming to you as like a father to a daughter. I'm coming to you as like someone a man to like our local witch can you stop this like massive blizzard like so that's a valid problem that you can see like somebody coming up and like it's you know it's serious but then of course in particular i think the worst offender here are the people who come to miss treason they're the ones who are like really really bad and yeah i'm not really a fan i think it's i think the reason for it is to really emphasize like the use of buffo and for, like, you know, when she's using that kind of trickery, that kind of headology that uses, like, a joke joke shop tricks, you do kind of have to dumb down the problems that people are, like, you know, using. That's not an excuse. It's just kind of my musings on why it might be. And I think you could also possibly say that, like, because it's a young adult book, they're trying to make, like, you know, everything as comical as possible and as simple to understand as possible. So something like, you know, whose cow is this or uh, which bit of farmland is this? And finally on that, I think one thing that I would say, and this is is kind of a minor defense of it, whereas in Mank Moorpork, you know, they have to deal with a lot of issues like, say, taxation, commerce and like, you know, racial tensions, etc., etc., I would say, like, uh, here we're dealing with the countryside. And there's been a couple of times in previous books, I think, when, like, in Lanker, they say, like, you know, people don't have this concept of, like, you know, um, for for example, like, racial tensions or taxes or anything like that. For them, their entire life is their farm. So all their problems are going to be quite simple. They are going to be about, like, you know, who owns this cow? How much can I sell my cabbages for? etc., etc. So you could say that, like, yeah, they are kind of treated like children, but their and their problems do seem quite childish. But they would do, I guess, like in this kind of semi fantastical historical setting where like everyone is just like a simple farmer or like a simple merchant or whatever. Again, not an excuse because it did bother me as well. It did. Like I'm just saying, this might be a possibility. We've had like other examples in the the witch books of like say that the great scene in a Carpe Juggalum where where Granny has to choose between saving the baby and saving the mother, you know, and the like, and she's called in and there's this sense of like the, the people who are calling her know that decision's going to have to be made, but they don't want to make it like they want, you know, cause it's so horrible and terrible. And and there's other bits where I think they talk about like, uh, they talk about a lot in half of sky of, of basically assisted dying, like easing someone on the way out as they're like in terrible pain and they're, you know, they're clearly terminally ill, but they're not going to die for a while. And that unspoken sense of like the family really wanting you to ease the pain, but not being able to bring themselves to say, oh, can you just like essentially painlessly kill poor granddad there? Those kind of issues, you know, it makes sense that like that stuff is something where you need someone like a witch right on the edge of things to to solve and that people can't quite, you know, bring themselves to address it. I just feel like like stuff like arguments over like you know like cows and trees and so on i mean yeah you're right like they did happen a lot in these very kind of practical people who live off the land but it but it feels like well surely they'd have a way of of solving it some of the time without having to go to their mammy who live you know who lives in the cottage like for me as well it's a 
the, the difference in it and Ankh Morpork when you think about like like veterinary having a similar relationship with the people of Ankh Morpork isn't just an urban rural thing, it's also a scale thing, right? That like veterinary rules over a city of I, I don't know if they ever give a population for it, but let's say it's about a million people. I'm always a bit iffy with any kind of book or, or work that like subscribes to these overall theories of like human nature because it, it feels kind of like lazy and generalistic just to say like all people are fundamentally x y or z but when you're dealing with huge masses of people you by its nature you have to generalize a bit more about them to kind of like make sense of them when thinking of them as a group when like veterinary is conceiving of the population of ankh Morbork and how you know how they'll react to a, a given decision he has to think of them in a really general sense whereas when you've got a small village full of people like I feel like a lot of the encounters we're we're getting are supposed to serve for this overall picture of like, oh yeah, witches have to deal with these arguments so people don't go around battering the heads off each other. But because we're just getting lots of groups of individuals in a population of a place that's you know whatever population of only like a hundred at most we can gather, you know, like in these small villages, it's you kind of then are left with the idea of like this argument over these two lads arguing over who owns this cow isn't just a kind of proxy for a tendency towards hot-headedness or selfishness in in people in times of stress you know we're, we're kind of left with the idea that like almost every individual person in this village individually is selfish or you know hot-headed or stubborn or, or whatever it is because we we get all these all these cases and it's it's very hard to think or conceive of them in the general when there's only so few of them and we're getting these individual bits of them like and even the language like miss treason because she's so old she can remember them being children and her grandparents being children and she still talks about them as children and i don't know i, I think it would have been interesting perhaps if tiffany had sort of in the same way with all of the witches that she serves under she you know took a bit of this on board but was also you know, maybe uh, more questioning of it, particularly given the background she comes from herself, you know, that she thinks like, oh, yeah, well, that's all very well and good for some people, but, you know, blah, 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 or I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to do things differently, or what Miss Treason can see about the villagers is that, you know, they're real people, but thinking that she's a bit too heavy-handed in how she interjects her uh, authority into these arguments to go on, but you don't really get any of that. It's just kind of left hanging there as like, uh, this is what a witch has to do, this is what, I, you know, and then we go back when Anagramma has bought the Bavo stuff and she's kind of, you know, ruling the roost and actually fulfilling her duty as a, as a witch and the, the villagers seem quite pleased with her. She is like being like, like you know, like a teacher with small children. Uh, neither of you own the tree. You're both going to cut it up. You take half the wood, you take half the wood. Now shake hands. And and there is certain, like, Anagramma being this sort of peevish, bossy, uh, you know, self-important person. Obviously, we're, we're, we can't suppose that, like, that way of doing things is quite particular to horror as well. But because we're seeing her essentially fill in Miss Treason's shoes, as it were, it's this sense of like, oh, this is what these witches should be, you know, aspiring to. It's this very paternalistic, patronizing view of, of, of the villagers, you know? And yeah, just, just left a bad taste on my mouth because while it, we don't get a huge amount of scenes with it, those themes of witchcraft and a witch's role in the community are fundamental to this book. Yeah, no, I, I do agree with you completely. Like, because I, I found it like a bit when I, I didn't really think about it too much, but I guess I did at some points think it was a bit simplistic. Two things I will say in this favor and do bear in mind that I am saying I agree with you. And just these are two things that I'm kind of musing on uh, in hindsight. One thing I will say is you could say a good counterpoint is the 
patient that Nanny Og visits the, the he's basically senile and he thinks that like death is coming for him and like they've basically construed this like illusion of like a crossbow that he can shoot at people and all that and like also Granny Weatherwax has like you know taken the pain out of his body and like you know just put it over here so that's one one example where we can say is like oh well here like you know I do think that quite a lot of the offenders that you're talking about come from mistreason and the reason that I think that might be and not an excuse for it but why I think it is the way it is is because it serves as part of Anagramma's arc because she has to learn responsibility and like if she's dealing with like more complex issues I think that would distract from the idea that it's all about basically Anagramma trying to come to terms with like her basic responsibilities learning to do very simple domestic chores as opposed to like you know more grander things it is problematic it did it did rub me up the wrong way as well but that's just what i imagine was the point of that yeah i mean i see what you mean by the first point and maybe there is an idea that like that this way of doing things is quite particular to to miss treason but it's i suppose it's never a question like you don't have tiffany thinking in the way that she does about like you know other aspects of, of witchcraft like of oh i like this but i you know I, I don't like this part of the way miss level or or miss take or granny weatherax does things you know she never really kind of has a thought of like god miss treason's a bit heavy-handed in her dealings with these villagers and for me i think if anagramma ultimately i mean yeah like like the bit at the end where she's kind of being like like bossy and kind of like teacherly almost like in like, like you know like a primary school teacher and in, in kind of like you know making the the villagers kiss and make up is sort of a joke about the kind of character she is that even when she has adapted to this role of doing things it's still going to be in her own way but i think if she was dealing with more complex problems it would have contributed more to that arc of responsibility done you know her learning to uh just like dominate and cow these idiot villagers uh, particularly as yeah you have that bit where, where she talks about like why she why she doesn't want to deal with these things and she talks about like mrs alwidge teaching about like simp they have simple peasant wisdom and leave them to themselves and while that in itself was kind of patronizing like there's a sort of noble sense of the noble savage about that it does again make for a kind of clumsy contrast so it's like so what are the two attitudes a witch can have is this naive belief in simple peasant wisdom or regarding them as you know childish sheep who need to be led around by the nose like you know we're not really left with what a kind of middle ground well a coherent substantial depiction of what a middle ground for a, a witch's relationship with her villagers are all the more frustrating because so much of what's good about this book is about Tiffany's struggle to balance being a person and being a witch, you know, and her relationships to people, you know, how they act when you have the pointy hat versus how they don't and what you have to lose and what you have to hide when you're wearing it versus the, the parts of yourself you do want to engage in, and you know, at times, but but are, are limited to by by your role as a witch. Yeah, you're, you're completely right, yeah. Um, it, didn't, it didn't rub me up, I think, quite as much the wrong way as did you but i can't really argue against that it is certainly a valid complaint that you could level against the book i just i was just so wrapped up in the rest of the story that it didn't bother me so much i have to say there's not much more i have to say on it but one thing that i did want to mention that i didn't get a chance to uh it's a very very minor thing it's just a pun but i thought it was fantastic but I absolutely love that Nanny Og's house is called Tir Nanog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, uh, for any of our listeners who are not of Irish descent, Tir Nanog was um, land of land of youth. Like it's it's like a kind of like a, a 
sort of fairy realm where you would go and never uh, never grow old mm. and in Discworld speak Tyrion and Og apparently just means house of Og so uh, that was a wonderful little thing and I want, I'm wondering like that's such a wonderful bit that I'm wondering how many people actually picked up on that it must have been a very select group of people who actually noticed that little pun but yeah I can't really think of anything else I might just have I a quick... it's quite appropriate too because Nanny is obviously despite her advanced age still very young at heart you know like uh Right, to still being very sexually active and uh, just, yeah, being more kind of jolly and things than, than the likes of Granny or Mysteries. And I, I, one small thing, I do love that part where they're talking about the symbolism and the kind of significance of the relationship between the Wintersmith and the Summer Lady and uh, Miss Tick, uh, Nanny Og and Granny Weatherax are kind of like awkwardly talking it over and thinking of how to explain it to Tiffany and Tiffany asks whether it's about sex and they're mm. all really embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of little bits that I want to bring up here that like we didn't really talk on because I'm not sure of how much there is to say, but just to like kind of pass a little comment on. One thing I have written down here is at one point on in my book it's page 89. Who is it that says it? Miss Treason refers to all the village people as parishioners, and I think that's interesting in terms of like the argument that you were saying before, and it kind of calls back. It might be a religious thing, maybe. Like, because, yeah. uh, like, if you think back to now, we can own, I, I mean, we can look at this from other countries' perspectives, but I'm thinking from a purely Irish perspective, how, like, parishes were absolutely ruled over by priests. But technically, if you kind of took a step back, they didn't have any, like, legal power or anything, but, like, they were the power in the entire place. And this, you could say, is somewhat reflective of that, but I'm not saying that in any way excuses like what you were saying and it's just like a minor yeah, but, thought but it's it's an interesting point because i suppose they are sort of like you know uh priests theoretically were supposed to serve the same role and not only just you know showing up every sunday to, to say mass yeah. and do funerals and things but also to like you know offer counsel and advice to people you know i mean obviously then there's arguments about how qualified they are to give that advice but being this sort of source of wisdom and, and guidance in what could be a kind of like chaotic and uncertain life which is certainly something that, that witches fulfill throughout the Discworld books. Just a few other little bits and pieces here. One thing that I thought was a nice little symbolic moment is that how I was saying before uh, a lot of this is about coming of age and you can't just say or do what you want you have to kind of like consider responsibilities and like the results of your actions. Just in a side note to that, I think it's really interesting that uh, on Miss Treason's last night before she dies, she teaches Tiffany how to play poker, which is all about, you know, keeping emotion out of your face and like, you know, Uh, you know, like I I thought that was a really nice little touch there. Just a neat little thing. Um, Another thing we didn't talk at all, really, about the Knack McFeagle in this book. Yeah, yeah, and they very much like they're probably less prominent than they they have been in, in any others. I mean, they're they're still very funny, and it probably they probably help kind of liven uh, leaven the the mood at times in in the book, so it doesn't get too heavy handed or dour. But but yeah, like like plot wise, obviously, other than than getting Roland, they they don't re they aren't really particularly important to the book. They're just kind of hanging around the the fringes. If I'm being honest, I think that's a really good move. Like, I'm I'm sure a lot of people are going to come down on me for saying this now. But if I'm being honest, I I don't really like the Knack McFeagle as characters. I think they work much better as minor characters. I thought they were at their best in Carpe Jugalum when they were just like this 
part of the plot, not necessarily someone who had to be like in every part of a series. That's that's another reason why I wasn't too pushed on the Tiffany Aching series. Thought like, is this all going to be focused on her relationship with the uh, We Free Men? I'm really happy that they've been like kind of regulated to the relegated to the sidelines a little bit because they make me appreciate them much more. Because when I say I don't like them, that's a bit harsh. I'm not saying that like. I wish they were out of the books completely. I just wish they had less of a role. And in this one, I think they serve it perfectly. Like in the first one, they were a very important part. Less so in the second one and even less in this one. I think they found a very good balance in this book because they provide some comic relief, a bit of levity, but they're not like, you know, they're not shoehorned into the plot unnecessarily, which I really appreciate. I thought that was great. Um... Yeah, uh, I think I think that's about everything that I have. Unless there's anything else that you want to add? Uh, no, I did like that we finally get to see Anoya, the goddess of things getting stuck in drawers. Oh who's yeah, been yeah, yeah. To, uh, many times, wasn't it? Didn't Moist um, attribute his his miracle of miracle in quotes of finding the money in in uh, going postal to her, and she suddenly got a lot more. Uh, followers she's a lot more narky and less neurotic than i would have thought yeah yeah yeah. uh, uh, yeah that was was just like a fun and the same way we like the dark morris dance is something that was alluded to way back in reaper man and we get it playing a prominent role here here we finally see this uh much mentioned figure make, make an appearance uh one or two other small things one thing I really liked was Nanny Og's summarization of romance. She said, Romancing is how a boy gets close to a girl without her attacking and scratching his eyes out, which I thought was a really nice way of summing it up. It's certainly how it feel, felt like when you're a teenager. Um, for me, anyway, I don't know about you. <laughs> Another thing, a uh, very empowering moment is when Tiffany says to Nanny Og, uh, Nanny Og says, oh, you're good with herbs, are you? And she says, yes, I am. Zoe, you're very confident. Well, if I didn't know I was good with herbs, I'd be stupid. And I'm like, that's just such a simple statement that I it loves how empowering that is. thought that was really, really good. Oh, actually, there was one more thing that I wanted to add. This is a very minor thing, but it might have been because I haven't read this book before. Um, and it's been, you know... there. When we've been going through all these, there's been very few Terry Pratchett books that I haven't actually read. But the moment when Tiffany appears in like the weird fantasy ice palace at the end, I thought there was an absolute barrage of hilarious lines in that uh, entire section. There's so many bits. I'm just going to read a few of them, if that's okay, because like, I just thought they were so funny. Um, like, or rather, and this is a delicious pun, ice away that's this has been radio Morpork. we are cancelling this series from here on uh... <laughs> it's that now these are probably aren't going to seem that funny in hindsight but um one of the things i liked where uh, she says the ice palace was an indulgent uh, piece of propriety it was like look i can afford to waste all this space i was like that's great yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's another point where she reaches a stairwell and she says the stairs went up unless you started from the top which is just dumb, but I love it as well. I think there was more, but I think they were the only ones I wrote down because I like them a lot. Um, but I'm going to say one last thing that Roland says before he goes, or while he's in the underworld. He says that if it hadn't been for Tiffany, I'd still be a stupid kid instead of a young man, hoping he isn't too stupid. Which I just thought was like, it's just a nice line. Like, I, I wouldn't read too much into it, but I just think it's really, really nice. Like, uh, yeah, I think because I think we all... I think we that's that's kind of a sign that we've all grown up because 
I don't know about you, like, I never really feel like I'm, like, so many, it always feels like when you're a kid that when you look at adults, you kind of feel like, I wonder when the point will come when you're like, I'm an adult now. I am an adult person doing adult things. But for me, at least, uh, I don't know if you can relate to this as well. I'm just kind of always in the case of like, I've gotten to a certain point here now where I hope I'm not doing the dumb things I was still doing as a kid. And I've got enough self-control not to do all of them. But, uh, you know, I'm just kind of at that point where I'm just trying trying my best. But I don't know for definite that I'm an adult. And that kind of spoke to me a lot there. Again, coming of age. And the last thing, the very last thing that I'm going to say before we move on. What did you think of Horace the Cheese? <laughs> I hadn't noticed this, but apparently there's um there's a line in uh, Lords and Ladies about when the elves are taking over about some of the cheeses putting up a fight. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it has a whole new resonance. Uh, I, I just I read that on TV tropes, but it has a whole new resonance uh, in in light of Horace. Uh, I I I quite liked it. Like I thought it was funny, and it's a kind of like weird marriage of Tiffany's or like her kind of. Uh, mundane you know early life career as like a, a milkmaid shepherdess and her her witchcraft and that you had this this uh, magical cheese i did think it felt a little like he felt a little um pointless or underserved there was a sense of you know like you, you get the uh, maybe maybe he'll uh, uh it's, it's a funny image and idea you wouldn't like a fucking sentient cheese to play a big role in the, <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the future tiffany aching books but at the same time we have seen this before where you have a, a particular character or idea shoved in there that you feel Pratt you just like really liked and had to get down and he couldn't quite work out where they fit into this story but you know he just kind of wanted to put the idea out there and then with some of them then in other books you see them take shape and 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 become more more prominent or more appropriate so it's not unlike the Feagle in in a Carpe Juggalum and then you know going on to, to play a prominent role here yeah it's um it was something that like it, it, like you said, it is funny. Like I, I can't really like say I had any problems with it, except that like it was kind of pointless. But in like kind of the way that like a random meme or like Monty Python sketches are pointless. Like it was funny, but like and maybe the whole point of it was the fact that it was just pointless. Um, I do kind of get the sense that it'll probably feed into the next book. If it doesn't, I'll feel a little underserved. I kind of hope that if at the very least, if it gets a mention in um, I Shall Wear Midnight, then I feel like fine then I'm good with that. But if it doesn't get mentioned again, I'm going to wonder why was it there at all? I think I'll, then I'll feel a bit weird about it. But yeah, no, it was just, a, it was one of those things that I'm like, I'm not sure why it's there. And like, I kind of want to see how you felt about it. I, I'm not 100%. I love this. I love how random it is. But by the same token, I wasn't like, this is dumb and random. It's like, no, it's funny enough. So there's going to be listeners who have read the rest of the Tiffany books who are sniggering at us thinking oh, little do they know Horace becomes sentient and is actually the main villain in Shepard's Crown oh my god I would love that <laughs> I should wear foe, Tiffany has to overcome <laughs> she has to renounce I cheese you, and Horace, become a witch and now I've got to end you do you think she'll like get rid of him the same way she got rid of the wintersmith by kissing him and that just like makes him crumble into nothing <laughs> turns him into yogurt I'd love that. Okay, well, I feel like we've exhausted all the themes here. Um, great book. And now we have the very difficult process of actually placing it in our indeed, list. Indeed, indeed. I feel like this could be a tricky one because I really like this one. But as we know, we've got so many uh, good, good books near the top now. I think once again, I'd like to remind our listeners that if we've placed this like 15th, that's still really good because of like how many absolute quality books that we have on this list. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's grading on the steepest of curves at this point because uh, of Pratchett's formidable output. And Speaking 15 of 15, interesting, next... <laughs> yeah, because that's where a hatful of sky is, and that's the natural point of comparison here, isn't it? Like I, I think we both agree we, we preferred it to Weefree Man definitively, but Hatful of Sky is her other Tiffany book. It's her highest ranked Tiffany book of 15. Is it better or worse than a Hatful of Sky? Ooh, it's it's tricky. Um, because Hatful of Sky was such a massive leap, like, I mean, yeah, but by the same token, like, I think I'd probably give this just a slight push above, just, like, very slight, because, like, um, Hatful of Sky did great things with identity, but I feel like this book was just so tight that, like, I, I'd probably give it to that, but just barely, I mean, I could be argued out of it. What do you think? Um, yeah, at a push, I'd, I'd probably agree. Again, there is a thing when you have the, the later ones in the series where Hatful of Sky, or Wintersmith rather, can build on some of the stuff that was established in Hatful of Sky, like Tiffany's homesickness and her kind of frustrations with some of the aspects of witchcraft. Uh, so there's a sense of Hatful of Sky walking so Wintersmith can run. So, you know, it, it's almost at an unfair advantage, but, but I think it is more accomplished and a bit deeper and, and richer than Hatful of Sky, which in itself is deep and, and rich book so it's going to go above hapless guy right above that we have two books that um have very have very similar flaws and strengths in reaper man at, at, at 14 amended arms at 13 because they're both books that have like incredible highs like the you know the, the ideas and and um, some emotional moments and uh you know character development in, in, in them is, is great but they're also quite structurally messy you know like i think what, what men in arms he said about I was thinking about this recently because um, there was a Twitter user, what's their Twitter handle? I think it's it's Hammard, who was running a, a, a Terry Pratchett World Cup where people that do votes on all the you know books as they're pitted against each other. And the final ended up being Nightwatch versus Men in Arms. And I was thinking, like obviously Nightwatch is our current number one and, and it would yeah, win, win that final. But I was like, oh, Men in Arms is really punching above its weight. And when I was thinking about that, uh, I started thinking about like all the good bits of Men in Arms. It's like, actually, have we really underrated that? But it is, it, it is I think, messy. I'm sure we had, I'll have to go back and listen. I'm sure, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure uh, we had good reasons at the time. The main thing I can remember is that like messiness of stuff like you have the Dog's Guild storyline that is like thematically linked, but like completely independent plot wise to everything else that's going on and likewise with reaper man you have the kind of tree ongoing things with uh windle poons and the wizards and death that are all again kind of thematically linked and, and linked by this event that has spurred the plot of the absence of death and the overabundance of life but really are like parallel tracks that only very occasionally converge so you could say they're like they're two books that are structurally messy but conceptually thematically and i don't know emotionally hugely rich and satisfying i think it's worth mentioning because like so many times i don't know if you've noticed this but on so many of the recent books we have actually come to this point it's always been reaper man men at arms around this point that we're like can we do it above and i think the reason for that is because pretty much everything above here is like very close to like masterful like because reaper the reason that we keep coming exactly to reaper man at, men at arms is because they have those particular flaws like men at arms like i feel like is I still maintain Men at Arms is better than Reaper Man because Reaper Man has the very tangible flaw of having very bad structural, like, uh, uh, very bad structure in general just because it has those that massive split in the middle. So, like, that's fine. Men at Arms, like, I remember that being really, really good. Like, um, 
there was just some bits that it was kind of unfair reading that because I was kind of thinking of future books as well. And I was thinking, I know that one's better, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like, but having said that now, um, coming back to this particular book, this might be a little controversial, but I think I'd probably push it above these. I think I might put it like above men at arms. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think I could be swayed because you could certainly argue that it's structurally superior to them. It's it's also the thing that I'm thinking of as well is that um, so bearing in mind this is a young adult book, so like he's setting the bar in not I wouldn't say lower per se because that's kind of slighting against like a young adult uh, literature, but like with the earlier books where that like that are aimed at adults and even though he would say at the time like young adults would read them as well he can be more ambitious and you can definitely see that in the likes of men at arms reaper man with uh wintersmith i think like he's kind of set a bar for himself but i feel like he hits that bar with this one like wintersmith he does so much with yeah i i i wouldn't be comfortable taking i i know obviously it's impossible to like ignore or like put it from your mind that Wintersmith that Tiffany Aiken was general or, or YA literature but at the same time if we're gonna be grading them like ranking them alongside and with the other ones mm, yeah. I think it's unfair to use that as either an you know as just in itself being an advantage or disadvantage of them I mean like you could argue oh well because it's young adult it deals with you know these uh, teenage issues that he's you know, whatever hasn't touched on before and that's great or you might say oh because it's young adult it feels a bit more simplistic in its treatment of x y or z so that's going to kind of get but i feel like just saying oh it, it's young adult so you have to give him more credit for what he's done done fair what he accomplishes in other books yeah yeah it's fair. it a bit for me um well put this i definitely put it above reaper man because even though i love 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 reaper man i feel like a lot of what i love about it is the imagery like i know that the the um the themes behind it and the message he's trying to convey is very cool but i also feel like wintersmith kind of inches above that at least because like it's so modern and smart and what it's doing that i'd push it above that and i'm kind of putting aside my own personal preferences with reaperman to say that i just think the quality of wintersmith is better at least so could, well w- it's interesting if it's if it's to go with reaperman with men in arms because uh, i mentioned one of the, the things that against men in arms is like stuff like the dog scale that doesn't really come into it but the other thing i remember irked me much more than you was the fact that eventual villain dr crucis has no real motive he ends up taking over from um oh what's the chap's name edward death edward deeds and yeah. who, who is this established kind of twisted view of uh aristocracy aristocracy and idealized view of the angkor passive but crucis is just kind of a, a vassal or a vessel rather of this corrupting influence of the gun and that annoyed me a lot that we don't really isn't really dealt with what exactly it's corrupting in him and here we have the the matter of the uh the, the way the villagers are depicted that while it did irk you it, it seems like it annoyed me more so with with both these books i suppose for you two of our sticking points with them weren't as prominent as as they were for me so when you're when you're assessing them to to together they're like i, I don't know is one of them counting for more or less in your head or does does that come into it at all because in in a really general sense i suppose these are probably two books that you would have a slightly higher opinion of than i would in general um let's see so uh when it comes to saying which one is better so i'm trying to think of like uh, the i remember the your issues with dr crucis in uh, men at arms and yeah the thing with the villagers here um 
see, I remember both of those were like overshadowed by the quality of the books themselves. So like neither of them really bothered me when I was reading it. Well, I suppose what I mean by it is that like if I'm weighing these books against each other, those things are probably kind of playing out in my head. I'm thinking of, okay, well, ultimately both both Wintersmith and Men in Arms accomplish brilliant things. So perhaps it's not a great way to think about it. So I'm thinking, okay, well, like going to their flaws, which flaw hurts the book more and thus places the other book ahead of it but for you those I'm thinking the opposite as prominent yeah. so yeah so when you're saying which one's better what's determining it for you um so yeah like i'm coming at it from the opposite perspective as you because like the flaws didn't bother me as much so i'm trying to think like what did each one achieve so men at arms i think was i remember at the time i was f- like floored by like how well they integrated the idea of racism slash speciesism into like the disc world and i thought that was amazing and like at the time considering like when it was written like that was like just monumental i thought this is great wintersmith is kind of a reflection of the times like so like this was written like a good chunk later like about 15 years later or or more i think and like it just feels so much more modern and it feels progressive like uh i guess the reason that i'm pushing wintersmith above is that like men at arms like you know makes big leaps in terms of like you know how it approaches like speciesism slash racism and like it kind of just integrates it into fantasy in a really interesting way and that's cool but i guess the reason i'm pushing wintersmith ahead is because i feel like it has more to say just in the terms of like human nature like in it's been so long since i've read men at arms so i might be remembering this wrong but in my head i'm kind of feeling like they're saying hey racism exists and like here is kind of some of the ins and outs of how racism works in like everyday society i'm like oh yeah that's cool whereas with wintersmith i feel like it's um taking quite a radical notion the idea that like you can enjoy uh you know your flings and like you know it's it's turning so many tropes on its head that i'm like oh i really like that so I guess it's just like the postmodern message, like that, the like how progressive Wintersmith is, is, what's pushing it ahead for me. Yeah, uh, like I'm, I'm not entirely opposed to putting it ahead. I suppose what, what's different for me is when I think of Men Arms, so many moments come into my head, like whether it's Bimes being revealed that he pays for the the um, wives, mm. and widows, and, and orphans of the, or rather, um. There's no word is there for someone who's lost one parent, but not both. Any case, of you know the the sons and daughters mm-hmm. of the uh, dead watchmen, the bit where uh, the bit with Cuddy and Detritus in the uh, in the in the future pork warehouse where Detritus makes a massive equation and then passes out, or the bit when after Cuddy's died and Detritus shows up to the uh, the assassins guild, it's the black rage, and I love Kara talking him down like it always gets me when he's just like, you know, if, if there's a, a heaven for watchmen, he's looking up at you, and then yeah. Or the part where Kara kills Dr. Crucis and Vimes thinks that thing of like, if you're, you know, if someone's got you at sore point, hope it's an evil man and not a good man. And mm. just that kind of sense of like absolute implacable, somewhat intimidating morality from Kara. Like you have a bit later when um, when Angua gets shot and he, he goes, he, he takes care of her, but then starts writing the watch reports or whatever. And it has to like personal isn't the same as as important, which is a very Granny Weatherwax thing, but uh, it's, it's something that Kara kind of embodies in this book um as as we go ahead and watching as well as much as i love vimes i kind of treasure men at arms for being the closest thing we get to a carrot book like he's very True. you know largely the the main character that's so that kind of i suppose that's one of the things that uh makes me 
think of its of its unique value among all the the watch books along all the discord books but yeah so all of them come into my head but i don't know whether the that that i can conjure up less of a list of great moments from wintersmith is just more down to the fact that it has less or whether it's more than the fact that i've only recently read it and that it's more character based you have less of these big tangible moments because of what feels like a more fluid plot it is very difficult because they're very different books like um you know men at arms is very much kind of like a whodunit kind of mystery story whereas like uh wintersmith is very much like a character study and like a coming of age story like you you almost couldn't get two more different books so that's what makes it very difficult to compare i'm kind of just saying like how how it like affected me and the fact that i've read men at arms like three four times now um i'm like yes i love it as well and i'm always going to treasure it but the the fact that a book that i've just recently read and it's really really resounded with me and i feel like it's an important book like it it really sends out such a positive message i feel like that's really significant and like you said like there are moments that i think are really really uh important that are like uh like like you said like epic moments they're they are simpler but on the basis of it being like a young adult novel but like uh that doesn't mean that they're like you know uh less poignant i suppose like for example like that moment that like we recorded you know like live here when i realized what the the symbolism of uh throwing the necklace over the waterfall like there's so much symbolism packed into that single act which i i honestly thought was incredible and like uh it's I I I don't know. Like I, I I honestly just feel like there's such delicate character building here, and it feels like it kind of feels like the difference between building a real like it's like the difference between building like a really 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 massive sandcastle, right? With that's like you know oh wow it's about like two meters square, and it's like wow look at the size of that that's great. And, like, you know, occasionally you'll have some bits that are really cool. And then with Wintersmith, you have, like, this, like, single, small sandcastle, but it's really intricate and finely tuned. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, there aren't parts of the other one that aren't finely tuned, but I'm just like, wow, just look at this. It's so perfect. Like, um, there are swaths of uh, men-at-arms that I'm like, eh, not so much. Like, like you said, the Dogs Guild, I wasn't that pushed on. Yeah, that, uh, the villain didn't bother me as much but now that you've said it and when i compare it to like how good a villain in inverted commas the wintersmith was considering like he isn't really a villain he's just misunderstood and i think that's really clever i'm 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 gonna push for it to be ahead of men at arms i could be argued down but i'd personally say yeah let's do it because like as well as like that i'm also looking at the one above it is mort and you're probably going to be shocked to hear this, but I think I'd probably place it above Mort as well. So, like... Wow, okay. Yeah, um, but what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I, I was... I mean, I'm, I, you've kind of won me around on Men at Arms, and I, I would kind of more... Pu- I, I was going to kind of defer to you on whether it goes ahead of Mort, mainly because, like, for me, I'd be, I'd be happy enough to take it either way. But, you know, the, the big sticking point for Mort to me was, was the ending. So below the truth, then I mean, is it is it above or below the truth? Now the truth is a tricky one. It's like trick. The the truth is a book that I felt very emotionally detached from, but I found very challenging in terms of like you know, 
mentally challenging because I thought it was a really interesting book. It's such a major transition point for the Discworld series. It's when like it kind of comes into the industrial age, and it's when it's such a major turning point. Yeah. I, I think for me, the truth wins a lot of points too for the fact that it is a standalone. Obviously, you have recurring characters like Veterinary and Dibbler and Vime show up. But the fact that it is standalone mean it has to do more work on its own. Like Wintersmith can work, build on a foundation of what the two previous Tiffany books and to a lesser extent all of the Longer Witches books have done. And while Wintersmith is to be commended for like how it builds on those things, like it doesn't kind of... Again, it isn't just like, uh, you know, a new witch adventure. It isn't kind of resting on the laurels of this setting that we, we've grown to, to know and love. It's it's taking it and doing something new. For me, it probably is more impressive that, that the troop manages to kind of like almost like whole cloth build not only these, these new set of characters, but William and, and Satyrissa, who are two of the more interesting standalone Pratchett protagonists than, than, than we saw in, in earlier books. But also in, as you said, like turning the Discworld around towards the Industrial Revolution, towards the idea of like, oh, when Pratchett is introducing a, a real world style innovation into the Discworld, it's no longer just a kind of one book rumination or gimmick. It's it's here to stay and it's going to ha like he's going to tease out how it, you know, it's affecting Ankh-Morpork and, the, you know, the people in it. I would probably agree with you that Trude is less emotionally engaging than Wintersmith, but for me, its other points would, would put it ahead. Yeah, I don't think I could downplay the significance and importance of the truth, like, in the overall, like, you know, uh, history of the Discworld. Like, it's such a massive turning point. And like you said, I feel like uh, a lot of Wintersmith kind of gains a lot because it's building on two previous books. Like, so, yeah, I think I'd probably agree with you there. I think I'd probably put it below the truth. Like, even though, like... I internally part of me is like saying i love wintersmith i really really loved it but i can't downplay how significant the truth was and how important it was so yeah i'd probably put it below the truth okay well wintersmith then is our new number 12 above mort and below the truth can't and believe that i put it above mort sorry i just like i'm, I'm just like <laughs> thinking i was like i love Mort, but I like it, it's a testament to how much I really enjoyed this book. It's really your really coming good. of age moment is <laughs> putting a, one coming of age book again up above a favorite coming of age book that you read when you were a teenager. Coming of age, <laughs> so, very very poignant. This very this poignant big stuff, moment yeah. in the in the podcast and indeed your your whole life. I'm just gonna fling my microphone off my balcony now as a way of like <laughs> saying you know marking this moment <laughs> to show how much I've grown. <laughs> I'm not paying for a new one. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> right uh so jesus this has gone longer than i expected i didn't think i had many notes on this to start with but, jesus, uh, yeah. it. so uh i can only hope that our quality matched our, our quantity any case next time we will have make money the second moist von lipwick outing mm. and until then you can get in touch with us at via email at radiomorepark at gmail.com you can find us on facebook or twitter and you can find our podcast in all the usual podcast places on your itunes your podcast addict your stitcher your soundcloud and so on if you want to leave us a review on any of those that'd be very nice help get the word out help boost our fragile egos always a plus <laughs> and yeah with that Thank you and goodbye. Bye, everyone.